With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. For more than a quarter century, Black Panther Party member Geronimo Pratt said he was the victim of an FBI setup. He was convicted of a murder he insists he did not commit. A year ago, CBS News turned up evidence the key prosecution witness was a police informer, something the jury was never told. This doesn't necessarily mean that Pratt is innocent. It may mean that he did not get a fair trial. Today, Geronimo Pratt walked free on bail and talked to CBS News correspondent Jerry Bowen. After 25 years and five appeals, a victory for ex-Black Panther Geronimo Pratt today. Victory and freedom. The same law and order judge who overturned the ex-Black Panther's murder conviction last month heard arguments for his release on bail today. It was a court-appointed attorney named Johnny Cochran who lost the case 25 years ago. There's something kind of special about that number 25. I think this court could very well set this bail at $25,000. And finally, Pratt himself spoke to thank the judge for throwing out his conviction because the prosecution failed to disclose its chief witness all those years ago was a government informer. I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your fair and courageous ruling. All right, so the bail will be set at $25,000. The legal system that kept him in jail for 27 years is something he didn't do cannot be justified by one judge having the guts to do the right thing. Pratt has always maintained his innocence, as he did again today in an exclusive interview with CBS News. No, my mother didn't raise a murderer. The last person I killed was in Vietnam. As you know, the district attorneys decided to appeal. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he made that decision? I think it's a face-saving facing, face facing, uh, face gesture. Um, I, I would be the happiest person in probably the country if this case goes to a trial. This is what I've been wanting for years. Do we have the format, the basis to now call all the things that we did not know during trial, to finally have a fair trial and expose the truth? What do you think of the justice system? From looking at it for the last 27 years, it's everything from racist to classist to sexist to all, everything in between. Pratt and the Panthers were regarded as a threat to national security because of their armed militancy and black power message, a message Pratt says is still relevant to today's black youth. They're tired of being, like, dependent. They know I represent that, that we don't need anyone to give us any welfare, to give us any, anything. We can do it ourselves. The DA's appeal could hang over his head for a year, but for now, he's out. Geronimo Pratt is free. Jerry Bowen, CBS News, Santa Ana.
context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, June 3, 2021. So I have been told this is our 14th and final study session on Jack Olson's Last Man Standing. The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Gijaga Pratt. Uh, we left off last week. Uh, we had Julio Butler back on the stand, his shenanigans and what have you, and then this kind of uh, sour note. They said that uh, Stuart Hanlon's partner, Kathy, uh, that's looking like she might be having some health problems, things might not be going so well moving forward, the end of 1996, moving into the beginning of 1997, where we are on the chronology of events. Uh, we just heard the CBS broadcast uh, when Geronimo Pratt actually was released uh, from a greater confinement. Uh, we'll get more details about that today. And of course, we will conclude like all phenomenal stories, you end full circle where we began a rental James Simpson, O.J. Day, returns to the cows with a vengeance. Last man standing. Get your final thoughts, assessments, observations together, and we will wrap it up. Context of white supremacy. This is audio segment one. Chapter 67, Man with a Gun. When Julius Butler returned to the witness stand at 9 a.m. on the day after Christmas, Cochran began his attempt to finish him off. The first area of attack would be the secret letter of August 10, 1969, that tipped police that Geronimo Pratt was a killer. Cochran asked, You wrote this letter yourself? Yes, sir. And you described last week that you didn't want to reveal the contents of this letter because you didn't want people to think you were a snitch? Depending on when, the context of when, I thought I wanted to reveal it. Question. When you wrote this letter, that was about a week after you had provided information about the weapons that you took Rice and Henry to recover. Isn't that correct? Answer, I don't recall the chronology, sir. Question, how did you make arrangements to reach or talk with Dwayne Rice about this letter? Answer, I don't remember whether he had called me or I had called him, and I told him I wanted to talk to him, and I would meet him outside. Question. Any particular reason, Mr. Butler, that a document this important to you at that time, that you would arrange to meet Dwayne Rice outside on the street, or in or about his car? Answer, it wasn't the first time. Question, 
Did you consider this to be a very important letter? Answer, yes, sir. Question, to be opened only in the case of your death? Answer, yes, sir. Question, and yet you decided to make the transfer of this letter on the street to an LAPD officer. Isn't that what happened? Answer, that's what happened. Yes, sir. Question, and it's true that around that time, you already told us that you heard the voice of a man calling your name that you believed was Agent Richard Wallace Held, the FBI agent, right? Answer, that's not accurate. Question, well, did you hear his voice? After the delivery? Answer, after the delivery, yes. Question, so two or three minutes after you delivered this letter, you heard Agent Held's voice out there in the street calling your name, right? Answer, I heard someone that could have been Agent Held. Question, you thought it was probably Agent Held? Answer, I said it could have been. Question, when this person called your name, did you go back and talk to them? Answer, no, I kept going. Question, where did you go? Answer, I went home to my apartment. Question, did you ever look back and see whether or not these FBI agents encountered or appeared to be talking with Dwayne Rice? Answer, no, sir. Question, how soon after the delivery of this letter did you talk to Dwayne Rice next? Answer, I don't recall. Question, he told you that FBI agents immediately came over to him and said, Give us the letter? Didn't Rice tell you that? Ferraria, objection, calls for hearsay. Dickey, overruled. Answer, I don't recall that conversation. Question. You told a number of people about this letter and its contents. Isn't that correct? Answer, yes, sir. Question, tell us, I want you to tell us all the people that you told about this letter and its contents tell us their names. Answer, I think that's impossible. Question. Well, do the best you can. Answer, I think I told Michael at the beauty salon. I think I told the guy at the cleaners. I can't remember his name. It's been so long. Uh, I think I told the guy that owned the drugstore next to the salon. Right now, his name escapes me. Question, who else? Answer, I think I told the people in my cadre. 
Question. You told pretty much all of the people close to you about this letter, this so-called insurance letter you had written? Answer. I told people. Question. You wanted to get the word out. Is that right? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. What about Maury Bowles? Did you tell him? Answer. I think so. Question. You did also tell the FBI, did you not, that you had written a letter containing information relating to the involvement of Black Panther members in an affair that could put them in the gas chamber? Answer. No, sir. I don't recall that. Question. Put them in the gas chamber, quote, unquote. You didn't make that statement? Answer. I've already answered you, Mr. Cochran. For another hour, the lawyers passed the witness back and forth. The judge had questions of his own. I'm not going to ask you for names, he said, but were there any other law enforcement or ex-law enforcement officers that were members of the Black Panther Party that you were aware of? No, sir. Is it something that you tried to conceal or hide from members of the Black Panther Party? Never. No, it was a known fact, sir. Dickey asked a few questions about the Ollie Taylor case, then said, When you were going to court during the trial of People v. Pratt, I think you said earlier that Maury Bowles was sometimes taking you to court. Was he driving you in a county vehicle? I don't know whether it was an unmarked vehicle or his personal vehicle. I didn't see a red light or anything inside. Question. Were you carrying that gun? Answer. No, sir. Question. At that time? Answer. No, sir. No, sir. I never carried the gun to the courthouse. Question. You weren't necessarily carrying it into the courthouse. Were you carrying it at this time in your life? Answer. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Question. When you arrived at court, what would you do with it then? Answer, it didn't leave the house. Question, you left it at home on those days when you were going to court? Answer, yes, sir. Butler's third appearance at the hearing lasted two hours before he was excused for good. The first witness after the noon recess would be Morris Bowles. The lunchtime conversation among the Pratt team members centered on the impromptu interrogation by the judge. What did it signify? Was he leaning? 
don't anticipate, Hanlon warned his colleagues, because you'll probably be wrong. This is the Pratt case. Nothing is what it seems. Cochran handled the direct examination of Morris Bowles. They'd been office acquaintances during Cochran's tenure in the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office and later as number three man in the DA's office. The 75-year-old Bowles was already on the record that Butler's garrulous claims about their friendship were a tapestry of lies, and in court he methodically denied Butler's claims of a relationship that dated to their days as young lawmen. The first time he ever saw Mr. Julio, Bowles testified, was when he served him a subpoena in the Pratt murder case. He said he never socialized with Butler, visited his apartment or salon, or gone nightclubbing with him. Nor had he given Butler a gun or the money to buy one. Bowles even contradicted Butler's testimony that he'd chauffeured the star witness during the trial. The former DA's investigator acknowledged that the name Bowles appeared on the confidential informant cards, but emphatically denied that the handwriting was his. Despite his age, the retired investigator's voice rang loud and clear as he insisted that Julius Carl Butler was a street thug with whom he would never have established a friendship. He confirmed that he'd acted as Calustian's investigator during the Pratt murder trial, but insisted that his role was limited to providing security, serving subpoenas, and making sure that all the witnesses appeared at the time they were designated to testify. As for concealing Butler's informant status from Calustian, Bowles emphasized that he possessed no such information to conceal, nor was he aware of or involved in any favors Calustian might have done for the hairdresser after the trial. Cochran asked how Bowles would characterize his relationship with Butler in the years after the Pratt verdict in 1972. Like two ships passing in the night, the old man replied and brought a rill of laughter from the packed courtroom by adding, Far at sea. He acknowledged that he and Butler were members of the first AME church. I see him all the time. He's right up front, but insisted that their social interactions were minimal. The Pratt lawyers were impressed by the Bowles' testimony and the firmness of his denial. Was it indeed true, as Bowles had once remarked, that Julio Butler was simply using him to cover up for someone in high places who'd been willing to buy the hairdresser a gun and favor him with other illegalities? If so, who? An LAPD administrator? An FBI official? A deputy DA? 
every member of the Pratt team drew up mental checklists of possible conspirators. Hanlon conducted the examination of retired LAPD Captain Ed Henry, who'd already told the Reverend Jim McCloskey that Butler was his regular informant. Like Bowles, Henry took pains to distance himself from the chairman of the board of the First AME Church. He said he'd also seen indications of a connection between Butler and the FBI. He testified that he'd sometimes noticed two male Caucasians hanging around Butler and asked Butler who they were. He stated he thought they were FBI agents and that he thought they had his telephone tapped because every time he would call to meet with either me or with Sergeant Rice, they would beat him to the location. And he says they were bugging him and they wanted to talk to him and he had refused to talk with them. Question. Did you give him any advice as a police officer as to what to do? Answer. Yes. I said to him, well, why don't you talk to them? You don't have to tell them anything, but you can talk to them and get them off your back. Question. Do you know if Mr. Butler ever talked to the FBI? Do you know through your own knowledge if he ever took your advice? Answer. No, I do not. Before court was shut down for the weekend, the retired police captain agreed with Hanlon that the term agent provocateur might well apply to Julio Butler and his activities. But Henry also seemed to feel that the cosmetician's chicaneries were of a low order of sophistication. He testified that whenever the police contacted the members of his cell, Butler would go out of his way to act more belligerent and foul-mouthed than the other Panthers. It was obvious that he was acting. No one had been fooled. Chapter 68, Ordeal for Kathy On Sunday, Kathy Ryan flew to Orange County with her sons Rory and Liam and confided to Juliana Drouse, I don't know what's the matter with me. God, I'm so tired all the time. Her lassitude didn't keep her from escorting the boys to Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm, as promised. In an evening hot tub session at the Marriott, Kathy joked, Look what Stuart's been doing to me. Faint discolorations were visible on her legs and shoulders. She thought she might be having an allergic reaction. Her fingertips had a bluish tinge. She didn't seem concerned. That's been happening a lot lately. You should get that checked out, Julie told her old friend. No big deal, 
Kathy said. She'd always hated to call attention to herself. She didn't like to go to doctors, Stuart Hanlon said later. She'd been showing signs of fatigue for six months, but she figured it was natural for a working mom. I was involved in the Pratt case and didn't pay much attention. She'd always done too much. She insisted on an immaculate house, and I didn't give a damn one way or the other. She'd go around picking things up, and I'd say, Come on, Kath, take a break. That's ridiculous. That was the only thing we ever disagreed about. The third week of the evidentiary hearing began on the next-to-last day of 1996 with retired LAPD Sergeant Dwayne Rice testifying heatedly that in the street corner letter exchange he'd been set up and still resented it. He said that about 15 seconds after Butler handed him the letter, two men in business suits appeared. They pulled out their identification and said, FBI, give us the letter that Julius gave you. It's evidence. I said, what do you mean? He said, we're FBI agents. He repeated again, we want this letter. It's evidence. I pulled out my badge. I'm LAPD and it's mine. They said, we'll take it. I said, no, you won't. And they backed off. Later, FBI agents approached him in the police cafeteria and threatened to have him incited for obstruction of justice if he didn't turn over the letter. I said, why do you want the letter so bad? And he said, because it's evidence. I said, what kind of evidence? They said, well, we just know it's evidence. I says, who told you that I had a letter in evidence? They said, well, we have information. Under Cochran's close questioning, Rice told the painful story of how the letter finally came to be opened. A white policeman had been tormenting him with pictures of gorillas, spears, comments on paper about the jungle bunnies, things like that. Very racial type things. Negative. In a hallway confrontation, his tormentor walked around the front of me, grabbed the lapel of my coat and said, Boy, did you hear what I said? Cochran's eyebrows shot up. He said, Boy? Yes. Question. When he said that, what happened next? Answer. I hit him. Question. What happened to him? Answer. He went down. 
Question. Did some investigation start? Answer. Yeah, a commander came out of the office because he wasn't moving. I thought he was injured very seriously. He finally woke up and got up and wanted to fight some more. An internal affairs investigation accused me of striking an officer, which I didn't deny, and at that time I mentioned that you don't ever put your hands on a man where I come from. I was raised in Detroit. You don't put your hands on a person. In the course of the internal investigation, Rice said the subject of the Butler letter came up and the chief's office ordered him to turn it over. Rice refused, explaining that he'd given his word to protect the contents till Butler's death. After a supervisor threatened him with prosecution, Rice phoned Butler for permission and was told, The FBI is jamming me, man. Give it to them. Rice recounted his reply. Why would you do this to me, Julius? You know I'm willing to lose my job. I almost lost my job and gone to prison because I was keeping my word to you. In the meantime, you told people I got the letter and what's in it. Cochran asked if he'd been upset with Butler at that point. Yes, Rice replied, upset, sir. He said that he told Butler a few words that were not nice. Question. Have you ever talked to him again since that, if you remember? Answer. He tried to talk to me, and I looked at him, and he left. I saw him at the chief's funeral, and he came over and sat in front of me and looked back. I looked at him, and he got up and moved to another seat. Question. Any of those times the FBI and LAPD was asking about Butler's letter, you did not know the contents? Answer, I had no idea. I didn't ask Julius. Question, Butler never told you. Answer, never told me. Question, you said they couldn't put pressure on you. What do you mean by that? Answer, because I'm the type of person you can't bully. Question, why didn't you want to have a confrontation with Butler after you thought he had set you up? Answer, because I would have hurt Butler and I have a family to take care of. On recross examination, Boreria asked, when you got here, did you come in and embrace Mr. Cochran and kiss his associate, Sean Chapman? Yes, sir, Rice answered, because we were old friends. Cochran resented the implication. He took back his witness and said, Sergeant Rice, you and I have known each other since I was a young city attorney in 1963, but because you have known me for almost 34 years, 
did you ever come into court, raise your right hand, and swear to tell the truth and lie? No, sir. When you testified against Geronimo Pratt in 1972, you were testifying for the prosecution? Yes. You did your job. I did my job. As he was about to release the witness, Cochran remembered the contradiction between the Bowles and Butler testimony about their friendship. Perhaps Rice could shed some light. He asked the retired sergeant how long he'd known Bowles. Answer, 30 years, 35. Question, was he part of the group that you were meeting with at restaurants, social activities? Answer, no. Bowles lived in the San Fernando Valley, and I only saw him on occasion if he happened to come into town. Question, do you ever recall Mr. Bowles with Mr. Butler at any time? Answer, no, sir. Former Deputy DA Ronald Mike Carroll, one of the last witnesses before the year-end recess, took the stand and admitted that he'd been dubious about Kenneth Olson's identification of his wife's alleged killer. I didn't like Ken Olson, Carol testified. I just had a personality conflict with him. I liked the woman from the hobby shop much better. She seemed to have her head screwed on better. Imagine that, Hanlon told reporters in a tone of heavy sarcasm. Mike Carroll says the woman from the hobby shop had her head screwed on better. She's the one who changed her description of the killer every five minutes. He shook his head in mock disappointment. These guys are so caught up in defending their position that they've lost the capacity to realize how ridiculous they sound to others. Then, Hanlon escorted his wife and sons home to San Francisco for the New Year's Day respite. Kathy promised to see a doctor as soon as she found the time. Geronimo's brother, Tim, was so sure of a favorable decision that he returned to his family in Washington, D.C. I felt that my mission to California had been accomplished, he wrote later. I left knowing that Christmas of 1996 would be G's last behind bars. The judge was no Pontius Pilate. After routine testimony on Thursday, January 2, 1997, defense investigator David Lynn drove Hanlon back to his hotel in Irvine. In his suite, Hanlon listened to a voicemail message from a family friend in San Francisco. 
Call me, Stu, right away. It's important. He returned the call, but there was no answer. He tried his home and decided that Kathy was probably running errands. She would return from her law office to put the boys to bed, make their snack, and read to them, then sit up till 1 or 2 a.m. working on cases. She was tall, wide-eyed, and slender, and gave off a pale aura of Irish fragility, but she had the work capacity of a water buffalo. It was one of the secrets of Hanlon's success. After another room service dinner, Drouse and Robert Garcia arrived to help frame questions for the next day's witness, Brian Hale, the investigator who'd turned up the important cards on Julius Butler. The Pratt lawyers had just begun their homework when a call came in. After a short conversation, Hanlon told Drouse, it was just my niece from Seattle. Julie felt a sense of relief and wondered what was making her so jumpy. Maybe it was the unanswered voice message earlier. The lawyers resumed work. Around 8 p.m., Hanlon said, I'm going to call home again. He disappeared into the bedroom. A few minutes later, Drouse heard him cry out, Julie, come here. I need you. She found him sitting on the side of the bed, sobbing. Kathy has leukemia, he said. She's going to die. Drouse was so shocked she couldn't speak. The Hanlons were among her oldest friends. Robert Garcia came into the room and she shooed him out. What's going on, he insisted. I don't know, she said. Let me think. She phoned David Lynn. The private investigator told her, Stay cool. You and Stuart are going home on the next flight. I'll drive you to the airport. Late that night, Hanlon found his wife weak but cheerful at California Pacific Hospital. An oncologist had informed her that there were essentially two kinds of leukemia, bad and terminal. She told her husband, the doctor thinks I lucked out. He thinks I've just got the bad. Hanlon thought, it's a dark version of the doctor joke. I've got bad news and worse news. They comforted each other all night. Toward dawn, he downed a handful of tranquilizers and nodded off in his chair. Chapter 69, The Just and the Unjust At 8 a.m., the phone rang in Kathy's hospital room. A groggy Hanlon listened as Cochran explained that he was headed to Santa Ana to take over. Tell Kathy we're all praying for her, he said. 
Tell her we envelop her in our love. You too, Stu. Stay where you belong. Before court reconvened, Cochran held a hurried conference with Sean Chapman and Robert Garcia. It's a sacred duty now, he said. We've got to win. Blood transfusions over the weekend seemed to strengthen the stricken woman. On Monday, she told her husband, You're going back to Orange County. You put half your life into this case. You're not quitting now. I'm not leaving at this hospital, Hamlin insisted. I'm in good hands. Geronimo needs you. Geronimo hates my ass. That's just his way, Stu. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't get so upset. While Kathy dozed, Hanlon drove to a tie shop on Fillmore Street. His colleagues had been kidding him about being outstyled by Cochran. He bought two garish ties, the loudest he could find. When he returned to Kathy's bedside, he checked himself out in the mirror. My God, he said to himself, the judge will hold me in contempt. His tie was the opposite of how he felt, tired, depressed, dead. Late on Sunday night, Hanlon and Julie Drouse returned to John Wayne country. In the end, the doctors had helped him to make his choice. They told him that Kathy had at least a year to live and an outside chance of full recovery. If there was a change for the worse, he could return to San Francisco on the shuttle. As soon as Hanlon arrived in Irvine, he began berating himself for leaving his wife, but also for entertaining the thought of abandoning Geronimo. He kept trying to reconcile the prospect of winning his long legal battle with the prospect of losing Kathy. I'm sick, Jim, he told McCloskey. I'm lost. I don't understand. McCloskey mentioned Christ's teaching that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But why Kathy? Hamlin asked. Everybody loves her. Why Kathy of all people? McCloskey said he wished he had the answer. The hearing slogged on. Through the Monday sessions, Hamlin willed himself to put his wife out of his mind and function as a legal technician. I found I could focus on witnesses for five or six hours, then return to real life. It's a reflex. It's training. It's what she wanted me to do. At the end of the day, after he collected his papers and snapped his briefcase shut, it hit him like a shower of ice. Kathy has leukemia.
On Tuesday, he learned that the doctors had downgraded their diagnosis. She needed a critical bone marrow transplant. He hung up the courtroom phone in tears. The clerk and Julie Drouse comforted him, and he managed to tough out the session. On Thursday, he lost his composure when he learned that Drouse had delayed their return plane reservations by a few hours. Who are you to change my goddamn reservations, he yelled. Why don't you mind your own business for once? She fled to her room and cried. At the first break in testimony on Friday morning, he apologized in front of the others. It was a first in his long friendship with his star brief writer. Drouse knew what he was going through and tried to comfort him. Stu, you're my friend. I will always love you. It's okay for you to yell. It's okay. All right? They both fought tears. He turned away, then said, But you shouldn't have changed the reservations. With the major themes of the hearing established, the Pratt team's closing strategy was to pound home the tripartite alliance of Julius Butler, the LAPD, and FBI. In the end, the lawyers felt they'd made their case. On Friday, January 10, Judge Dickey dismissed the final witness of the four-week hearing and gave both sides five weeks to produce written briefs. Oral arguments would follow two weeks later. It was another painful delay, but Cochran urged his colleagues to be patient. I checked this judge's record. He said he takes his time. That's another reason he doesn't get reversed. Reporter Edward J. Boyer of the Los Angeles Times, in his third year of doggedly following the case, asked Jim McCloskey how the Pratt forces had managed to come up with such a powerful presentation after so many earlier defeats. McCloskey told him it was no great genius-derived master plan. We were in the dark, bumping from wall to wall. Besides, he said, we still haven't won. Chapter 70, Return Fire Another Times, this one published in New York, roused Stuart Hanlon to anger with an attack on his famous colleague. In the editions of January 28, 1997, columnist Maureen Dowd described Cochran as this man who had persuaded a jury to ignore evidence and decide O.J. Simpson's fate based on racial grudges, this man who had the gall to rank the Simpson case as a civil rights struggle akin to Brown v. Board of Education, Dowd wrote that the dark impulses have been good to Mr. Cochran and were now paying off with 
Cochran and Company, his show on Court TV. At first, Hanlon regarded the column as mild, at least compared to some of the diatribes aimed at Cochran after the Simpson acquittal. But his eyebrows shot up as he read the next passage. Indeed, Mr. Cochran was so busy in New York this month preparing for the debut of his show that he missed most of the hearing in California to overturn the murder conviction of his client, Elmer Geronimo Pratt, the former Black Panther leader who may have been wrongly sent to prison 25 years ago. Mr. Pratt's other lawyer, Stuart Hanlon, came from San Francisco, even though his wife had just been hospitalized with leukemia. Hanlon fired off a lengthy response, portions of which appeared under the prominent three-column overline, Cochran did not abandon Geronimo Pratt. Hanlon accused the highly respected columnist of insinuations that are not only untrue, but that I find personally offensive. He wrote, Any conclusion that Mr. Cochran abandoned both Mr. Pratt and myself is untrue. Mr. Cochran has stood up for Mr. Pratt for over 20 years, both publicly and privately. During the evidentiary hearing, he was a true co-counsel who examined half the witnesses and was involved in all aspects of the hearing. Mr. Cochran has demonstrated his commitment to Mr. Pratt by being an integral part of Mr. Pratt's legal team. For almost a month through the Christmas holidays, Mr. Cochran worked pro bono for Mr. Pratt. Miss Dowd's intimation that Mr. Pratt and I were abandoned is more than merely inaccurate. It suggests a cruel insensitivity toward Mr. Cochran totally unsupported by facts. In reality, Mr. Cochran is coming back to court to argue the case before the judge. If a new trial is granted, Mr. Cochran has committed to try the case with me. Kathy Ryan read the exchange in her hospital bed and managed a weak jibe at her husband. Let's see, Stu, she said. You're fighting with the cops, the DA, the LAPD, and the FBI. You're fighting with Julie, and you're always fighting with Geronimo, and now you're fighting with the New York Times. Who's next, Stu? Australia? He was glad that she was feeling better. In mid-February, Deputy DA Brentford Ferreria suffered a mild stroke. Both sides were saddened. Like his colleague Harry Sondheim, Ferreria was more an academic lawyer than a litigator, but he brought a light touch to the courtroom and had proved to be a skilled opponent. Back home in Washington, D.C., Timothy Pratt thought out his own reaction as a Christian 
and finally committed it to paper. It was very tempting for me to pass judgment and conclude that this was an act of God's judgment against this man who deliberately kept my brother in jail for an additional three years after he knew that he had not received a fair trial. Instead of passing judgment, I prayed for his safe recovery. It was what Eunice Petty Pratt would have told her son to do. Ferraria's illness caused the judge to postpone oral arguments until March 13. Geronimo was enraged by the latest delay. It was easy for his lawyers to point out that he'd been inside for 26 years and, what's another month? Every time he began to count the days to his release, someone rewrote the calendar. Toward the end of the evidentiary hearing, he'd begun to fantasize about a victory parade down the courthouse steps. Instead, he moped in his cell and missed Ashaki and his children. Hanlon relieved the boredom with an unexpected visit. Within minutes, the two old warriors were engaged in a verbal shootout over a matter so petty that a few weeks later, neither could remember the subject. As they argued, the visiting room guard lowered his newspaper to watch. Hanlon fired his verbal salvos from a sitting position, but Pratt circled the table, clenching and unclenching his fists. Hanlon looked up at him and said, You want to punch me out, don't you? Geronimo said, You got that right, turkey. Fuck you, G. He stuck out his chin. Take your best shot. Pratt cocked his arm, then turned away. He looked back, raised his arm again, flopped into the chair, and shook his head. What a couple of dipshits, he said under his breath. The guard turned back to his newspaper. After a long silence, Geronimo said, What are we going to do about this judge? You got a beef with him? The guy's just trying to do things right. That's because he's not serving the time. You got to push him, Stu. This isn't fair. File a motion. Get him off his ass. I'd file a motion if I knew what motion to file. Man, I thought you were a lawyer. I am a lawyer, goddammit, and I'm telling you, if we push this judge, we'll regret it. He's not the kind of guy that yields to pressure. Neither am I. Where's Cochran? I need a lawyer with balls. Fuck you, G. As Hamlin started to leave, he thought... Why should I even care about this asshole? I have a sick wife. I have other things to worry about. Sure, he's scared, petrified. He knows 
This is his last chance. It was a mistake to visit him. He relieves tension by blowing up at people. So do I. What a combination. How'd we make it this far? When he finally stalked off, he was convinced their friendship was over. Chapter 71, Inside Story The Orange County Jail was overpopulated, and three weeks before final oral arguments were to be heard, deputies chained up Geronimo for a temporary stay in a state prison. The van lurched to a halt after an hour's drive, and he wondered where he was. He flashed back on the rainy night he'd been jabbed in the arm and dragooned to Folsom. The door of the vehicle opened, and he found that he was in Chino State Prison near Pomona, just outside Los Angeles. Hey, he said, this is a mistake. I'm supposed to go back to Mule Creek. A black guard said, Don't ask us, Geronimo. We just work here. Three days later, he was peering out of a cage in the infamous Palm Hall, Chino's solitary confinement section, and the locus of several bloody riots. When he demanded to know why he was once again in a hole within a hole, a counselor told him, I guess it's your reputation. This isn't right, Geronimo raged. I've been on the main line for years. I'm on my way out of prison. You know about it. It's been all in the papers. Don't worry, the counselor said. You're going back to Mule Creek. You'll soon be on your merry way. That night, Geronimo heard cell block stories about fresh blood on the walls of Palm Hall. African Americans were in the majority at Chino, as they were in the entire California prison system, but they hadn't been able to head off an atrocity by a party of young whites. A popular black correctional counselor had been sodomized, slashed to death, and dumped in a garbage can. His skinhead killer was being held in another part of the prison. One of the black prisoners warned, Watch your ass, Geronimo. The guards already put out word that you're here to do a hit on the Nazis. What? It would make some motherfucker a big man to kill you. Around midnight, Geronimo heard his cell door lock click open. I saw this little white face coming around the corner with a shank in his hand. The homies had been sitting up watching, and they began rattling at their bars, howling, yelling, banging the walls. They made so much noise that the guards had to come in. The little white guy slipped back in his cell. Geronimo realized that he'd survived another assassination attempt. He didn't blame the intruder. He blamed the Chino staffers 
who'd spread word that he was a hitman seeking revenge. The skinheads thought I was going to kill them, so they were going to kill me. That's the way it works in prison. But I didn't expect to get set up just when I'm ready to go home. I guess it went back to the poison darts, the bus kidnap, taking hostages, all that bullshit. Prison guards have a long memory for things that never happened. He reached Hanlon by collect call and was soon transferred to Mule Creek to await the resumption of the hearing in Santa Ana. Several days after his return to the main line, Geronimo was meditating in the sunny yard when another inmate began to talk in a confidential voice. Pratt hardly listened. He always provided a strong shoulder for his fellow prisoners, but recent events had redirected his mental energy inward. It was a matter of survival. After a few minutes, he heard a familiar name from his distant past. Say what? He asked the talkative inmate. You said Captain Franco? Through the years, he'd often thought of his murdered colleague, Bunchy Carter's strong right arm and underground cell leader. Jim McCloskey had always suspected that there was a connection between the tennis court shootings and the execution of Franco Diggs less than 24 hours later. Geronimo's last contact with the 40-year-old Diggs had been a few days before the Santa Monica shootings when the captain drove him to the Los Angeles airport in Pratt's red and white GTO. A week later, Pratt returned from Oakland to learn that his driver had been found on a sidewalk with bullet holes in his head. Geronimo apologized to the prison yard monologist and confessed that he'd been half listening. Take it from the top, will you, brother? Captain Franco was a friend of mine. The inmate identified himself as a former resident of South Central Los Angeles and a distant relative of Swilly or Hatter, Geronimo didn't catch the exact relationship and knew better than to pry. Within minutes, he'd heard a new version of the tennis court shootings. Herbert Swilly and Larry Doobie Hatter had been members of Julio Butler's cell. In an ongoing feud with Butler, Captain Franco had demeaned the hairdresser by ordering him to sell several bundles of the Black Panther. Butler gave his underlings the keys to the GTO and instructed the young heroin addicts to carry out the assignment on his behalf. Mama also reminded them that the red and white convertible was known to police as a Panther car and was not to be used in illegal activities. Swilly and Hatter quickly gave up on the thankless job of selling the party papers and threw them away like other young Panthers before them. They robbed the Olsons to get the money to reimburse Julio for the newspapers and to buy drugs 
then fled the scene in Pratt's GTO. When they told the other cell members what they'd done, they were warned that Franco Diggs knew about the newspaper transaction and might connect them with the tennis court shootings. The next night, Swilly and Hatter set up a meeting with Captain Franco on the south side and shot him dead on the sidewalk. Geronimo relayed the story to his team members. All felt that it came as close as could be expected to solving the puzzle. The remaining question was whether the wrong man, in his 50th year of life, would continue to serve time for the crimes of others. Context of white supremacy. So we are almost done. Pause. I don't know if this counts as, as the cows having good timing, but throughout our 12-year history, I have regularly felt like, wow, we are very much in sync uh, with things that are happening in the universe, uh, in the system of white supremacy, racism. So today, famed O.J. Simpson attorney, Ethley Bailey, passed away at the age of 87. I was stunned. His book just came out uh, within the past couple of weeks about the O.J. Simpson trial. He was just a guest on the cows uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, if you had uh, spoken with me a year ago, two years ago, and said, oh man, F. Lee Bailey, you know, he's about to pass away, you know, he's getting old. I'm like, F. Lee Bailey? F. Lee Bailey? F. Lee Bailey? Let me let me get my phone. Let me see. Oh, I didn't have a phone. <laughs> let me get to my laptop so I can see, do some searching to see who this athlete. Oh, O.J. Simpson. And I was like, oh, O.J. was was guilty. He, he got that no count. O.J. Simpson. That's what my thought process would have been like. Woo. Learning a little bit, but that's in the archives, December 2020. F. Lee Bailey. And didn't we hear a lot about O.J. Simpson today? Anywho, before we get to Rental James. Uh, this is our last segment, Jack Olson, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. We will finish up our second audio segment and moving on to new book, Labyrinth, The Assassination of Tupac Shakur and the Notorious B.I.G. Talk about putting things in context in L.A. for the 1990s. Before we get to all of that, you just heard the section or read the section, hopefully paying attention where they talked about Mr. Pratt returning to Chino. And he should have been at Mule Creek. He said, hey, this is a mistake, and you got me in the hole. Like This is like a double whammy mistake and all this. So he hears about this fresh blood, and he hears about <clears throat> a popular black correctional counselor had been sodomized, slashed to death, and dumped in a garbage can by a skinhead. And the killer's in another part of the prison. I'm stunned when, when I'm narrating this, right, for you all. I was stunned. So I make a note, even as I'm narrating, I have to go see if I can find some information. Now, number one, this could have all been a much easier process. What do they say? Say the name. Now, we went through this exact same uh, problem not that long ago, we had a black female guest on the program, and she wrote a book about yoga and racism. 
and she talked about the uh, 2016 killings of uh, Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling, but she did not say either of their names, and she gave the incorrect year. She referenced these police killings as 2017. They happened in 2016, and I raised that. Again, what do I always say? I say, strive for accuracy, and I said, man, they do all this talking, you know, say, say her name, say her name, and then you're not even going to name these black males, and I noted the same thing happened with Isabel Wilkerson's book. Uh, where she talked about the uh, killing that happened in Dallas, and she talked about the South Carolina killing Dylan Storm Roof when he killed the whole church congregation, and she didn't name anybody, none of the victims, but she named Heather Hart repeatedly uh, in the book. White woman killed in Charlottesville. She gets named over and over, not uh, State Senator Reverend Clementa Pinckney, Nobody gets named there or any of the other uh, cases. Amber Geiger's victim in Texas, none of them get vang, uh, named. This one, this black male counselor doesn't get named, so that made it difficult for me to try to investigate to figure out what in the world. Sodom, we've been, I've been saying the whole book, that's a major theme. Uh, emasculation, homoeroticism, uh, sexual abuse of black males. Sometimes it's white people doing it. Sometimes it's them allowing, demanding, forcing uh, another black male, non-white male to engage in this behavior. But this is throughout the book in a variety of different ways. Long John Washington, I think, called in Chicago, pointed that out, Henry in Chicago. Lots of different ways. But then sodomized, throat slashed, and thrown in a garbage can? Like, how is that not, you know... A case everybody in the world is talking about. Like, are you serious? So I go to try to find, you know, when counselor killed this period of time, like late uh, 1996, early uh, 1997. The only thing I could find is this, but this is not a black male. So I was left with one of two conclusions. Uh, either this is the case, and maybe Jack Olson just got the sex of the black victim incorrect, and it was a black female, not a black male. Maybe that's what happened. Authors do make errors. Or this black male, as of yet, I haven't even been able to find a report like name nothing about this incident. But he gave so much detail, sodomized, slashed, in a garbage can. Some aspects of that are in this report. That's why I was thinking it could be that this is the victim, this is the case, and the time period is close enough that this could be the case that he just gave the incorrect sex of the victim, which all the worthlessness of black life. This is the report that I found. Man guilty in death of CYA staffer. Uh, this is from, not, uh, well, this report is from like 2000, but they're We'll read. A San Bernardino Superior Court jury convicted inmate James Ferris on Tuesday in the 1996 murder of Counselor Inese, I-N-E-A-S-I-E, -E, M. Baker at the California Youth Authority Prison in Chino, correct facility. Ferris, 29, faces a possible death sentence for stabbing and strangling Baker, a crime that some experts say led to a more severe and authoritarian regime in the youth prison system statewide. Uh, let's see if they give any more information. Uh, 
first degree murder, killing a faculty member. Let's see, Deputy Public Defender David Negus had argued that Baker was actually not on duty at the time she was killed in the C and D cell block because she had taken off her duty belt and personal safety alarm as she prepared to go home. Uh, they didn't buy that. Let's see. Yeah, here we go. During the three-month trial, jurors heard disturbing details of how the killer assaulted Baker in the closet. Maybe that's the sodomizing? cleaned up the bloody crime scene and carted the body to a dumpster so that's that's what I'm saying like a lot of the details match so this could be the case maybe he just did he made an error with the sex of the victim all without being detected in the state's highest security youth prison Ferris killed Baker to get her keys in a failed escape attempt said deputy district attorney Michael Ramos Ferris was afraid about his imminent transfer to the adult prison where he was about to be shipped as he reached his 25th birthday Ramos said, uh, let's see, mm -mm -mm. I think I will, mm -mm -mm -mm. yeah, I can stop there, oh, wait a minute, it says, friends of Inezi Baker had complained about poor security and a lack of staffing at the prison. Employees in a guard station apparently took no notice as Baker was attacked just a few feet away worthlessness of black life baker was the fifth youth authority employee killed in the agency's half century of existence she was the first peace officer killed inside one of the youth prisons so i think this is it i keep you know seeing that information i think this is the case the time period i mean if they had two of these cases at the exact same time period of someone being slashed and thrown in a dumpster, like, come on. Uh, so I think this is it. If I had to, you know, kind of give my guesstimate, I'd say I'm around, we'll say 65. I'm about 65% sure that this is the case, that Mr. Olson just got the sex of the person incorrect, which, again, worthlessness we can't even do the detail to put the name in eh, male female negro some sort eh. anyway um one of the reasons that you read i got i found the article where they wrote about johnny cochran i guess i can share that too and then we'll get to some of the listeners and folks who wrote in as well since we're wrapping up today so maureen dowd who is a white woman who has been writing at the new york times still Maureen Dow writes for the New York Times. So this is someone who has like at least a quarter century history, maybe dedicated to white supremacy, racism, and journalism at the New York Times. So not some, you know, uh, ho-dunk uh, circulation of two people, the New York flipping Times. So her report, 1997, F. Lee Bailey passed away today. Her report from January 26, 1997, uh, I stood in line behind Johnny Cochran to go through the metal detector for the inaugural address. So this would be Bill Clinton second time around. A stream of men and women excitedly approached, wanting to have their pictures taken with the lawyer. Some asked Mr. Cochran to, touch up, to crouch a bit so they could capture the other icon of democracy, the Capitol Dome. My goodness, now the site of the insurrection in the background. 
The lawyer obliged, beaming. A few minutes later, I wondered if this man who had persuaded a jury to ignore evidence and decide O.J. Simpson's fate based on racial grudges. This man who had the gall to rank the Simpson case as a civil rights struggle akin to Brown v. Board of Education felt a twinge when the president talked about the divide of race as America's constant curse and urged against succumbing to the dark impulses that lurk in the soul. Probably not. The dark impulses have been good to Mr. Cochran. What a sentence. Dark impulses. You too, Billy Clinton, you could have been more clear. Indeed, Mr. Cochran was so busy in New York this month preparing for the debut of his show that he missed most of the hearing in California to overturn the murder conviction of his client, Elmer Geronimo Pratt, the former Black Panther leader who may have been wrongly sent to prison 25 years ago. Mr. Pratt's other lawyer, Stuart Hanlon, came from San Francisco even though his wife had just been hospitalized with leukemia. But the disgusting Simpson affair, awfulness, topping awfulness, as writer <laughs> Jeffrey Tubin <laughs> now disgraced, puts it, finally has a hero, and he is Daniel Petricelli. This is one of the white attorneys from the civil trial where they did secure a conviction, but that's a whole nother book, whole nother story, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so we skip through some of this. They talk about some of our friends, Chris Darden, Marsha Clark, blah, 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 that no count O.J. Simpson. Of course he did it, blah, blah, blah. And Tubin knows he did it too. Uh, let's see. Uh, so if Simpson loses the civil trial, according to Tubin, the legacy will be a black verdict and a white verdict. I have no idea what that means. That's just more, that in my view is a white, two multiple for even that being quoted. The first Simpson jury, or let me even start up. The juries for the Simpson trials, civil and criminal, none of these juries had an exclusive race. You had white people and non-white people on both juries so it would be totally inaccurate to look at either of these juries white jury black jury whatever it is a jury with non-white people and white people some the criminal trial had more non-white people than white people the civil trial had more white people than non-white people but there were non-white people on both I guess if anything the civil trial juries don't have to be unanimous the white people unanimously voted guilty, which is all they needed. The non-white people unanimously voted not guilty, which didn't matter because it didn't have to be unanimous. So maybe that's your white, non-white verdict. Anyway, continuing, the report concludes, if justice is to be colorblind, then juries cannot engage in racial payback. The innocent verdict for Mr. Simpson was a guilty verdict for America. Johnny Cochran's gift to jurisprudence was, as Jeffrey Rosen wrote in The New Republic, to transform a pampered celebrity into a victim of oppression. But what if Mr. P 
Petrocelli's truth could reverse Mr. Cochran's lie? <laughs> what if a guilty verdict for Mr. Simpson could find America not guilty? I don't even know what that means. Wouldn't that be glorious? Oh, there is one thing that might ruin it. Mr. Petrocelli could get a show of his own. This is Maureen Dodd, uh, and they did publish Stuart Hanlon's rebuttal uh, in the New York Times. This is in the New York Times. Again, this is not even, uh, this is an L.A. case, and they're sitting here and watching this. Maureen Dowd still writing, writing away. Uh, let's see, talking about Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden, lots on the president, Hunter Biden, and presidential politics, the New York mayor's race. 25 years, Maureen Dowd, probably, I suspect, practicing white supremacy racism. And again, same thing with Geronimo Pratt, O.J. Simpson. We don't even have to tell the truth. I can get on here as though I don't have staff and resources to check and make sure, verify. Is Johnny Cochran, did he just like kick Geronimo Pratt and you all to the curb to go run off and do his show for Court TV? Is that true? I'm just going to say it anyway. It sounds better. Not to me. I worked this case pro bono and let them freeload and mooch off of my credit card in addition to being in the courtroom ready to roll. What he said, stay up till 4 a.m., but to have some suspected race soldiers is flagrantly lie. And again, not for some publication with a circulation of five people, the New York Times. And you just get to stay and kick it for another 25 years and continue doing this? system of white supremacy racism. Let's say, and then they'll come back and tell you it's white male privilege. It's white male privilege. It's white patriarchy. Oh yeah. Whatever. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see, I'll read a few of the comments uh, investors wrote in, I guess, untiljustice at gmail.com if uh, you have uh, one that would prefer to email your commentary. Uh, investor uh, wrote in, man with a gun, uh, number one, retired LAB, LAPD captain Ed Henry also seemed to feel that the cosmeticians' chicaneries were of low-order sophistication. He testified that whenever the police contacted the members of his cell, Butler would go out of his way to act more belligerent and foul-mouthed than the other Panthers. It was obvious he was acting. No one had been fooled. Does he mean only the race soldiers were not fooled? Question. Since it sure seems like the Panthers were fooled by Butler. Maybe I have misinterpreted the text. No, sir, you have not. I said the same thing. I think Johnny Cochran had said that to Geronimo Pratt years ago. Like, what in the world? Why were you all hanging out with this guy? Why did you all have this guy around? Anyway, so obviously some of the Panthers, yes, they were fooled. And I think if memory serves, they said the AME Church, he had 3,500 black brothers who were there in support. Like, we love us some Julius Butler. So, Again, okay, now nah, I'm going to do something. The people who are confused about racism, black people. Next, Rice refused explaining that he'd given his word to protect the contents till Butler's death. Rice recounted his reply, why would you do this to me, Julius? 
you know I'm willing to lose my job. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe I can get this sound effect in really quick and then whew, continue. My goodness. Let's see. Black brother. Black brother of hell. Yes, yes. Number three. Hanlon, toward dawn, he downed a handful of tranquilizers and nodded off in his chair. Should Hanlon be placed in some sort of drug rehab? Question. <laughs> Admits to multiple drug usage, disheveled appearance, his, us- his usage affects his relationship with his wife, and he exhibits instability and incompetence in the workplace. This is the opioid, by the way. I know he was uh, talking about doing cocaine and now, but, but that is it right there. He was doing the tranquilizer. That's it right there. You can just go to the doctor. Oh, man, my neck is a little stiff. Do you have, if you're white, no problem. Get him by the bucket. For, here, go to Costco. Get him in bulk. No problem. Get him by the bucket. That's it right there. If Johnny Cochran had been doing that, come on. Come on. They get mad at him because his suits are too flashy. This guy is abusing tranquilizers and snorting coke and filing briefs late, lying to people, and yeah, great lawyer. The just oh wait a minute skip one uh, three Hanlon oh I already read that. the just and the unjust number one his colleagues had been kidding him being outstyled by Cochran he bought two garish ties I think he was mocking Johnny Cochran absolutely lots of that uh, throughout the text uh, that's something to think about as well as we kind of mosey along next uh, return fire number one Columnist Maureen Dowd described Cochran as this man who had persuaded a jury to ignore the evidence and decide O.J. Simpson's fate based on racial grudges. This man who had the gall to rank Simpson, the Simpson case as a civil rights struggle akin to Brown v. Board of Education, dark impulses have been good to Mr. Cochran. Indeed, Mr. Cochran was so busy in New York preparing for his show that he missed most of the hearing in California. The innuendo, black misandry, and out-and-out lies of a suspected racist. White women do it better. Next, inside story. Number one, African Americans were in the majority at Chino as they were in the entire California prison system, but they hadn't been able to head off an atrocity by a party of young whites. A popular black correctional counselor had been sodomized, slashed to death, and dumped in a garbage can. Racist white supremacists are in charge, no matter the number of non-white people. Absolutely. Uh, and. I guess that that incident that I mentioned, if anybody can find uh, any information at all uh, about this killing of a counselor in Chino, it would be at the end of 96 or very early, very, very early part of 97. As I said, just going on the times and information that we have, limited though it may be, I think that this is the victim that enabled. If this is the tri- if this is the case, it would mean Jack Olson. That's an error in the text that it should be. It was a female, black female victim, uh, Anisi M. Baker, I N E A S I E. But if anybody can find any information, uh, apparently uh, a white person killing a black 
uh, correctional officer counselor uh, in a very vicious manner, body dumped in a garbage can and all that. If anybody can find any information about this happening to someone other than Ms. Baker, let me know. But if not, I think this is the case. And I mean, wow. How would you how would you grow up in California as a black person and not know about this case? Like killed by a racist in prison and then the conviction this person's getting the death penalty. Mr. Ferris, I have to make sure, you know, see if they did execute him, but I mean Woo. System of white and the worthlessness again, not named in the book, sodomized, killed, and dumped in the trash. And then you get to trial and say, hey, 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 she wasn't even working. She had already taken off her badge. Come on now. We're messing around. Total worthlessness of black life. I think Dr. Welsing, she used to say, life unworthy of life. Uh, let's see. Folks have any thoughts? Spectating. I'll share a few of my thoughts. The last section is a little lengthy. I uh, just wanted to make sure we wrapped it up today. Uh, so I'll share my thoughts, and then if folks are still spectating, we'll just get to the second audio segment and wrap up Last Man Standing. Uh, let's see. Some of my notes from the section. I already read those two. Let's see. And then the same thing. So he's been in prison at this point for nearly 30 years. And this is where we started. Remember, he, they, he was saying uh, that he would have to stay up at night and he would hear the electric lock on his door click. And he would look out and people would be coming down, Mexicans or somebody else, like, yeah, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. And he would have to get Charles Manson or somebody else. Or go, hey, man. What are you doing? He said the Mexican guy knew that he had been helping out and teaching Latino history uh, way back when. That was 25 years ago within the chronology of this book. Uh, but that, I mean, that's what I said the whole time. He could have been killed easily at any point uh, through this three decades of hell. Uh, and then the folly, worse than that, but that's just, you know, that word was used. Folks telling him, yeah, hey, man. You served 25 years. You can, you know, you can do another four days or, or five days. What I like, man, forget not having a toilet and all that. I could be killed like today. What are you talking about? Like, get, let's see. Uh, this uh, whole thing where Hanlon, Stuart Hanlon, is, man. Me and Geronimo aren't friends. Like, we've heard that repeatedly throughout this text. Like, he was whining to his wife last week. Like, oh, man, me and Geronimo aren't friends anymore. And she's like, oh, you all will make up. No, who else could put up with each other except you two and blah, blah, blah and all this. And I'm, you are an attorney. You are not my pen pal. You're not my friend. I think Johnny Cochran had, had laughed at him and said, man, you've not had one of your clients uh, curse you out before you must not be doing your job I'm not your friend I'm not your homie and his wife keeps telling him Mr. Pratt is the one serving the time you are the one who can go get tranquilizers and cocaine and whatever go off to the beach and do all these other goofy things he is stuck in a cage where he could be killed and sleeping in his own filth and waste eating gruel like 
what are you talking about? We're not friends anymore. This is not your friend. I mean, in my view, that is like very much racist white supremacist talk. Do your job. I'm not trying to have my lawyer be, are we still friends? Are you still my favorite gut? Like, get out of here, man. I'm just, Get me out of here. Like, you get out of here and then get me out of here. Like, what are you talking about? Are we friends? Uh, let me see. And I totally, I am attempting to be universal man, attempting to become human in that process, but certainly life unworthy of life right now, victim of white supremacy. I can appreciate anyone the mother of their children or parent of their children, spouse, passing away, wow, that's really painful. And the timing, that's a part of this story. On the other hand, like, man, I feel like this white woman and her medical problem is super sidetracking. The focus on Geronimo Pratt, what happened with the trial, like we could get, we could get more details, like at least what is the name of the black person who sodomized killed and thrown in a trash can as opposed to all of this detail about Kathy's illness and it's just like white people find ways in stories that are supposed to be I think it's a black person's picture on the front of this book I think that's Geronimo Pratt I never met him but they will find ways within that stories of where the spotlight has to be shifted and going to a white person and, oh, woe is Stuart Hamlin, and, oh, it's all right if he gets some tranquilizers and yells at folks because he's grieving and this is so sad and they've got little white children and all the rest of it. Like, man, Geronimo Pratt, I am sure he had relatives and his mom's health deteriorating. He didn't get to go and hang out with her and, oh, maybe that's why he's irritable. He's not getting to go and do this and spend these touching moments and console his mom because he's in a cage and hoping, hope my cell door isn't open so that I could be killed today. Hope I get a toilet and all the rest of it. Like, it really galled me, uh, all of this, you know, side, like, or at least it could have been minimized. I'm not even saying that they have to ignore it or pretend that that didn't happen, but I mean, wow, it seems like a lot of the people can, I guess, think about that as we continue. Let me see. Anything else I want to make sure? Get in. I did not take time to see if I could uh, find what Johnny Cochran's court TV show uh, was like, just because it's not really related to the text. Uh, but maybe I'll see if I could check it out. Uh, incidentally, they say one of the risk factors for leukemia is smoking. So sobriety would be best. That for sure includes smoking cigarettes. Uh, they continue to mention John Wayne in this book. They went back to John Wayne County country uh, in Southern California. Uh, I, I guess I can appreciate some measure of that for, you know, if they, if you're telling me that you think this region is, is more racist or that might be important for context. But, I mean, we are in a total system of white supremacy racism. Uh, the Oakland police were spying on the Black Panther Party just like they were in Southern California. So... John Wayne is very popular, even beyond California, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, let's see. Geronimo hates my, like, all this is so personal. This is like I have, you know, like I'm in middle school or high school. And I got, you know, somebody I sit in class with and I'm pouting. Like, he didn't speak to me today. I'm mad. Are you a litigator? 
or a teenager. Like, come on, man. And you're not even the one in greater confinement. Like, get your act together. Stop taking drugs. Yeah, get some counseling. Stop taking drugs. Sobriety would be best. Say that again. Uh, I thought this was interesting comment or just the description. He's talking about Kathy. He says she was tall, wide-eyed, and slender and gave off a pale aura of Irish fragility. But she had the work capacity of a water buffalo. It was one of the secrets of Hamlin's success. I took that to mean while he is disheveled and late and snorting cocaine and tranquilizers, she is doing the work and taking care of the children and doing her own life. That's how I took that to mean. I think somebody has said we don't have patriarchy. We have a uh, matriarchy. White went, but yeah, that's off topic too. Let's see. Oh, man, this will be, I'll check in with some of the listeners, and then we can get the second one. So we are reading Labyrinth Next, LAPD's involvement, the assassination of Tupac Shakur, notorious B.I.G., same time period, that right exactly that we're talking about right now, like, beautiful job with the books, like, we are going right in order, O.J. Simpson, Geronimo Pratt, Tupac Shakur, who is, Geronimo Pratt's uh, godchild, right in order, even though, being truthful, it would be Geronimo Pratt first. But, anywho, um, let's see. Officer Wright, or Sergeant Rice, told the painful story of how the letter finally came to be opened. A white policeman had been tormenting him with pictures of gorillas, spears, comments on paper about the jungle bunnies, things like that. Very racial type things negative and then he says he walked around in front of me grabbed the lapel of my coat and said boy did you hear what I said now apparently this is something that happened like I don't know 70 I guess around the time of all of this trial so 70 whatever take 71 72 70 somewhere in there wow uh, white people are not ignorant about white supremacy racism. We do talk about neutralizing workplace racism. I do not advocate any black person. You have a white person who calls you boy, gal, in a workplace setting, nigger, any of this, jungle bunny, or showing uh, pictures of apes, any of that. I do not advocate busting them in the jaw. I don't think that's going to work out for you. I think he did say they had a disciplinary hearing, so could be an assault charge anything uh, composure is very important I don't think this would fly if he tried this I'm assuming like I said I think this happened probably sometime 1970 or whatever uh, I think if he were to do the same thing 2021 I suspect it would be a very different result uh, let's see and then trying to provide we talk about that all the time white people do that they get you in a workplace setting and try to provoke you to respond that's why you got to keep your composure uh, let's see anything else ordeal yeah cause see this book is supposed to be about Geronimo Pratt and now we have whole chapters that are titled after this white woman I'm not saying her health her death should be ignored or omitted from the book 
But this should not be said, particularly as we go toward the conclusion and all it. It should not be a white heroine stealing the spotlight from Geronimo Pratt, Vietnam veteran, as we go to the conclusion. Like, come on. Or a moping white man grieving about this white woman. Anything else? Yeah, I can pause there. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter, commentary you wanted to make sure you got in, sir. Greetings, Gus, and to uh, everyone. Uh, yeah, first uh, first half, uh, I did hear the, the, the term dark or darkness several times, uh, once again uh, using uh, the uh, racist codification use of the uh, – convenient use of the, uh, the the term to describe something uh, incorrect uh, in supportive of uh, refined uh, acts of white supremacy, racism, uh, and to use in that type of term. Uh, unfortunately, t uh, too many non-white people also copy the term itself when they describe something that is incorrect. Uh, uh, I was just thinking about this uh, this white attorney who has been connected with uh, the case uh, for 27 years. And uh, I'm just making, being this in the end of the book, I'm just making an overall analysis that uh, – my thoughts is that he probably contributed towards at least 10 of those 27 years uh, with his uh, incorrectness of, of, uh, of uh, unprofessionalism with the advent of, uh, you know, imagery is, is a part of uh, the legal experts who are called uh, lawyers. Uh, presentation is very important. <laughs> you know, uh, when you're in the courtroom, I would assume. I'm not a lawyer, but I would assume it would be. Uh, and uh, we we have witnessed uh, Mr. Cochran's uh, uh, court appearance, and uh, and uh, we have read about this white male's court appearance. Uh, in the book, is almost like legendary as far as being incorrect. Let alone talking about uh, if if with the drug use that he was pers personally uh, in indulging in, you know, consuming, it, it has to affect your, 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 your abilities everywhere else, including on your job. So I have to, I have to, to uh, at least logically think that that had to also affect this case and the person that he is supposed to be representing, uh, you know, and I mean, uh, Mr. Pratt himself was saying, you know, file something, you know, <laughs> and he's he, he's talking about what, what do I, what I'm supposed to file, and 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 Mr. Pratt asked the logical question, 
um, made the logical statement. Yeah, you were the attorney. You know, and uh, I mean, bottom line is in times of, in this case, legal legal strife, it has to be it has to be an attorney that ha- that that is to, is to solve or confront that problem. And we can certainly say that that uh, Mr. Cochran uh, has made some some attempts in doing his career, uh, and uh, quite a few of them successful, you know, in his attempts. Uh, I wouldn't say all of them, but uh, he he is known as being uh, successful, and I can't say that with 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 the person like uh, Mr. Hamlin. Uh, and uh, I think he cost uh, uh, Mr. Pratt at least 10 years of, the, of those 27 years, you know, as far as that concerned. That's my thoughts on the first half of the reading. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. I'll just I'll, I'll put my thought exercise to his commentary in this way before we uh, shove off to second audio segment, which is a little lengthier than normal, just so that we can totally wrap up the book today. We'll do a little overtime, and anybody, if you have concluding comments or thoughts, feel free. Uh, I think we will get some more O.J. Simpson mention in before we uh, wrap up the book. Uh, if anybody, if you think it would be possible, any way, shape, form, for Johnny Cochran, right, as we know him, uh, for him to have a reputation and to be talking publicly about, oh, yeah, snorting a few lines here and there. You know, they say cocaine is the lawyer's friend uh, and coming to court all right. Like, yeah, you know, I don't want them saying that I'm wearing all these flashy, loud colors and suits in court. I'm going to tone all that down. In fact, fashion is overrated. They call Stuart Hand rumpled of the Bailey. I'm going to just, you know, grab anything off the rack and rumpled clothes, I don't really tuck my shirt in, like, do we think it would be possible for John, I'm not even saying he's got to have his court TV show and million dollar book deal and all that, I'm just saying, like, does he even get in the courtroom, remember when they stopped him at gunpoint with his children in the car, remember that, now let's play that incident over again, yep. with, what is, rumpled of the Bailey, raggedy car, needs to be washed and, you know, run over shoes, ring around the collar, <laughs> and see, ah, oh, wait a minute, I'm an attorney, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, get out, <laughs> attorney, cocker, yeah, yeah, we've heard it all before. Maybe I'm in error, just little thought exercise, contrast programming, Dr. Welsing would call that. Rumpled of the Bailey, Stuart Hamlin's nickname for being raggedy in appearance, Johnny Cochran, who they contemplated kicking off the team because of his flashy appearance. That there is the context of white supremacy. We will push off to the second audio segment. If you didn't get to talk, have thoughts, write them down, and we will make time. This is, again, lengthier than normal, but we are pushing it all the way to the conclusion, wrapping up Last Man Standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Final audio installment. Chapter 72, Endgame. 
In the nine weeks of downtime between the final testimony and closing arguments, Stuart Hanlon fought off daily bouts of anguish. Aided by his precocious son, Liam, he frantically searched the Internet for medical information. We kept coming up with leukemias that had a good cure rate, but then the doctors would tell us, no, she has a different kind. So I'd say, what kind? And they'd say, we're still not sure. They were only sure of one thing. If she didn't have a bone marrow transplant, she would die. Kathy's brother, John, proved a perfect match and four surgeons performed the procedure at the University of California Medical Center. Once again, doctors were optimistic. One predicted that she might resume her law practice within a year. Her siblings had rushed to the Hanlon home in San Francisco. John for the transplant, Sheila to run the house, Marnie in from Cambodia to care for the boys. The Ryans of Massachusetts had always been a tight family. They made Hanlon proud to be half Irish. On March 13, 1997, 65 days after the final testimony in the evidentiary hearing, the lawyers reassembled to act out their roles in the legal theatrics known as final argument. The judge would learn nothing new, having been briefed and rebriefed by both sides on what he'd already learned during testimony. Opportunities for anti-Pratt oratory would be limited. Brentford Ferreria was recuperating from his mild stroke, and the legal scholar Harry Sondheim, with backup from Deputy DA Jody Mitchell Link, would speak for the side euphemistically known as the people. Hanlon and Cochran would present opening statements and later rebut Sondheim's remarks, giving the Pratt team four chances against one for the prosecutor to influence the judge. Cochran interrupted his court TV schedule and flew in from New York. Just before the session opened, he took his former associate Sondheim by the arm and said, Come on, Harry, join us now. This is the time. He beckoned toward the overflowing courtroom. Everybody here knows Geronimo didn't get a fair trial. Nothing's secret anymore, Harry. It's all out in the open. Let's stipulate and end this thing right now. Then I'll take you out for dinner, all the soul food you can eat. Sondheim didn't seem to share Cochran's good spirits. He insisted that it didn't matter whether Julius Butler was an informant or not. Pratt would still have been found guilty. Cochran squeezed his opponent's arm and said, Good luck, Harry. I know you have your orders. 
Geronimo Pratt entered the courtroom in a long-sleeved, oyster white dashiki with tribal hieroglyphics on two front panels, long black sleeves, and a charcoal back. A flickering rhomboid from fluorescent ceiling lights glowed on his shaved head. He wore wire-rimmed glasses and nervously clasped and unclasped his hands as he joined Cochran, Hanlon, Kathleen Cleaver, and Robert Garcia at the petitioner's table. Garcia handed him a white plastic cup of coffee and Geronimo bolted it down in one gulp. Hanlon summarized the case and then yielded to Cochran, who took over the courtroom in his customary style, part formal and part florid. Thank you very kindly, Judge Dickey. To Judge Dickey, to Miss Link, and to Mr. Sondheim, to my colleagues Mr. Hanlon, Mrs. Cleaver, Mr. Garcia, and to my client Mr. Elmer Pratt, as he spoke the last name, he put his hands on Geronimo's shoulder. Your Honor, he said, bowing slightly toward the judge, I stand before this court as a lawyer who has now practiced for more than 34 years in the courts of this state. I have tried a number of cases, a lot of murder cases. This case, however, has and always has been the most important. He apologized for being a little more emotional than usual today. He nodded toward Hanlon and said, It is because this has been our life's work. Hanlon had covered the factual issues, so Cochran opened on legal morality and ethics. Part of our life's work as lawyers is to seek the truth and justice in these cases. The prosecutor has a different burden, as the court is aware, than certainly the defense has. Their idea is to make sure the guilty are punished and the innocent go free. Our role as defense lawyers is to do the best we can for our client to represent to the best of our abilities. In this case, as Mr. Hanlon has so correctly pointed out, we have got mixed up somewhere along the way. The search for truth has come from the defense. We are the ones asking for witnesses to be brought forward. They are the ones seeking to block it out with technicalities. They are the ones who didn't want Rice and Henry to testify. They are the ones who alleged the evidence is not relevant and that there is overwhelming evidence against Mr. Pratt. I hope that today, by the time Mr. Sondheim stands up, that he will review and he is a good and honorable man, he will review in his mind the responsibility of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office to do the right thing in this case. Like Hanlon before him, Cochran thanked the judge for an opportunity to seek justice 
to get the facts out. They tried to block us at every turn, but you had the courage when we came down here to at least allow us to put these witnesses on and, Your Honor, out of that came information that we couldn't have dreamed of when I tried this case in 1972. Because, as a young lawyer, you see, I tried this case thinking that everything was fair, that everything was above board. Richard Kalustian and I went to law school together. We were in the same class, so I knew this man. I had known him for some 12 years before he walked into that courtroom. I knew him. I didn't think they would try to hide documents from me. I didn't think he was caught up in trying to win or to neutralize this man. He reminded the judge of Kalustian's statement in 1972. If the jury believes Julius Butler, regardless of whether they believe or disbelieve the identification of witnesses, Mr. Pratt is guilty. The case is over if they believe that. Now, Cochran pointed out, in this revisionist history that Mr. Sondheim and the others want to do, Butler is not nearly as important. It was always that other evidence. They tried to rewrite history. He blasted the officials who'd helped Butler buy a gun. Public funds were given to a man who had pled nolo contende to four felonies. Four felonies. And he didn't just walk around with the gun. He used that gun to disarm people, to threaten people, until he was finally arrested in 1981, ten years later, with the same gun that they gave him. They looked the other way. This is the picture of the prosecution that has emerged. They made this man and put him above the law. This is about Julius Butler and they elevate him to a status. Then, in their brief, they try to make him seem like a saint. When we finish, you are going to see he is not a saint. He is not worthy of your respect. He is a lying perjurer, a con man, a conniving snake, a pathological liar. For the first time in the courtroom history of the case, Cochran publicly accused the FBI of being directly involved in the creation of the insurance letter that had led to Geronimo Pratt's conviction and incarceration. We see Kalustian's notes where it says this thing all started with the FBI. There's a reason for that, Judge. This all started with the FBI. They knew about the letter back then, and they sat on it all those months. They helped him 
write that letter. The spectators fell silent as the significance of the accusation sank in. Hamlin watched admiringly as his team partner dominated the courtroom. You could see how Judge Dickey admired his lawyering skill, Hamlin said later. I was 48, but to Dickey, I was still a young punk. But Cochran was... Cochran. Having directly accused the nation's top law enforcement agency of helping to frame an innocent man, Cochran returned to the subject of Julius Butler. He's had a great run, he told the judge. Here is a felon who, through survival skills, through conniving, through pretending to be someone that he isn't, parlays his four felony convictions and goes off to law school. Meanwhile, this man, he gestured toward Pratt, this man is in a prison cell the first eight years in solitary confinement, and Butler does all these things hiding behind a prosecution that's supposed to be interested in truth and justice. But his great run is coming to an end. He accused the prosecution of abandoning every principle of justice. All the way through, it is about winning. It is almost as though the prosecution went to the Vince Lombardi School of Winning. That winning is everything. They are not interested in any justice. That's what we dealt with. And they tried to tell you they had an overwhelming case. They had no overwhelming case at all. They were here to thwart justice and, unfortunately, they have continued to thwart justice by their response by their motions, by their resistance. He turned toward the DA's lawyers. So finally, he said, I ask my friend, Harry Sondheim, will you, after seeing what we have presented at this hearing, will you join us today and stand up and agree that Geronimo Pratt was deprived of a fair trial by virtue of the evidence suppressed, not by Harry Sondheim, but by the others on the prosecution team? That's the least they should do. Because after 27 years, and you believe in the system as we did, what do you say to Geronimo Pratt? What I do say to him is that there is one court who was willing to give us a hearing, and these are the fruits of that hearing. And by their fruits shall ye know them. And the fruits that we have uncovered here will lead to this man's freedom. They know it. It is unavoidable. It will not be stopped because it's time has come.
Sondheim opened on an unexpectedly waspish note. I suppose if I were really to comply with Mr. Cochran's wishes, I wouldn't answer any questions. I would just take about half a minute, concede, and sit down because that's what he is suggesting I do. He looked at Cochran and said, On the other hand, I know he has reserved some time and wants to rebut whatever I am going to say, so I don't want to deprive him of that opportunity, and I think I will continue. Cochran smiled and mumbled, It's okay. It's okay. Sondheim harkened back to his own three years on the case and repeated that he turned up nothing to suggest Pratt's innocence. Then he reprised the latest rationale for keeping Geronimo in prison. What difference does it make whether Butler was an informant or not? There is no evidence that Julius Butler gave any evidence of value to law enforcement. He spoke of the overwhelming proof of Pratt's guilt, including the Barbara Mary Reed identification, and read aloud from the L. Thaxton Hansen decision. As a matter of practicality and probability, it would be extremely coincidental and highly improbable for any other light-complexioned male Black Panther in the Southern California chapter or any other male Black in the greater Los Angeles area or any place at all to have an identically shaped and sized scar in the same position on his face, that scar in part that was used by Mrs. Reed to make her identification. Befitting a respected legal scholar, Sondheim based many of his arguments on earlier decisions, frequently quoting judges who'd ruled against Pratt. He echoed U.S. Magistrate John Cronenberg in praising Superior Court Judge Kathleen Parker. He quoted Justice Hansen's reminder that the defendant was only entitled to a fair trial, not a perfect trial. He accused the Pratt lawyers of ritual incantation of prosecutorial misconduct and added, if you can't support your own contentions, blame the other side. And that's what we have been getting here, a lot of blame, and it isn't warranted. If Geronimo Pratt was denied a fair trial in 1972, Sondheim argued the fault lay with Johnny Cochran and Charles Hollipeter, not with the DA's office. If Pratt's lawyers had done their jobs, they could have found the evidence that was now being used as the basis for a new trial. As for the defendant himself, Sondheim dismissed him with a simple phrase. The jury concluded that Elmer Pratt was a liar. Cochran listened impassively until he heard Sondheim refer to Pratt as a street thug 
then began scribbling on his legal pad. Judge Dickey put down his own busy pencil when Sondheim cited the length of the 1972 trial as an indication of Kathleen Parker's fairness and thoroughness. If I can interrupt you just a moment, Mr. Sondheim, the judge said. Sure. That raises an interesting point because there have been several references to the trial as a protracted trial. Dickey said he'd added up the hours devoted to actual testimony and they totaled only 36. Judge Parker had run a relaxed court, seldom convening before 11 a.m. or remaining in session beyond four. Dickey also took issue with a Sondheim claim that the evidence against Pratt had been overwhelming. Obviously, the judge said, the original jury hadn't thought so or it wouldn't have taken 10 days to deliberate. The Pratt lawyers were encouraged. Someone was paying attention. Someone was keeping score. When Cochran rose in rebuttal, he was still seething about Sondheim's personal slam at Pratt. I must say I am a little disappointed in my good friend Harry Sondheim. He began the light glittering off the gold cross he always wore as though to counterbalance his taste in ties. He calls Geronimo Pratt a street thug. Where does he get that from? He glared at his former colleague. How could you make a slanderous statement like that? Once again, he put his hands on Geronimo's shoulders. This man was a Vietnam veteran who was decorated, who got the Purple Heart, who saved a lot of men, who came home from that war a young man. He was concerned about changing things in this community to make it better. His voice rising, Cochran said that there was never any evidence he was a street thug. It becomes convenient to dehumanize him to try to justify what Sondheim is trying to say that he shouldn't have had a fair trial that he could be neutralized and put out of the way. He is not a street thug. He hasn't lied. He hasn't manipulated this system for 25 or 26 years. He has been a victim. I looked at him today, and he is almost 50 years of age. I have been associated with this man over half of his life. More than half of his life has been in custody. And they have the temerity to stand up here and say he is a street thug. We know who the street thug is. Before he yielded the floor, Cochran paid tribute to his colleague. 
I want to say how much I respect Stuart Hanlon. The court is aware of the personal problem he has been facing of life-threatening proportions. When I first met him at San Quentin, he had a lot more hair and was a lot younger and wasn't even a lawyer. The fact that he is even here today lets you know how important this is to us. Then he returned to his theme on morality. Justice is very elusive. You can try to blot it out, but it keeps coming back. As Dr. King says, injustice anywhere is the threat to justice everywhere, and that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Because, you see, the same system that helped put Geronimo Pratt away is the same system that allows us this moment here in court. So the same government gives us some hope. You, Your Honor, are that last and best hope, an independent person who doesn't owe anybody anything who can say that, based upon this evidence, we have carried our burden even far beyond the preponderance of the evidence. I hope you will do that, and this man will get his rightful day in court. That is all we ask. He smiled at the judge and thanked him very kindly. Hanlon's voice would be the last heard in argument, and he decided to pound home a final lesson on prosecutorial ethics. He noted that Sondheim had bestowed praise on the Los Angeles DA's office for ultimately providing key information about the confidential informant cards. Except for this extraordinary cooperation, Sondheim had argued the Pratt team would never have seen the information that bulked so large in their case. Hanlon turned toward the DA's table and said softly, Mr. Sondheim, that's supposed to be the way it works. You are the government. You have the police. You have the evidence. We find out about it as defense lawyers because it is your job to give it to us. There is nothing to take pride in that you do your job as a prosecutor. He pointed out that the DA's arguments and briefs tried to take apart each piece of evidence and say, this alone would not have made a difference. This alone. But the law, he said, required the judge to weigh the evidence as a whole. A gun does not stand alone. Being a felon to carry a gun does not stand alone. Clayton Anderson's belief that Mr. Butler was an informant for two other agencies did not stand alone. Mr. Willis's statement that he was an informant for the DA does not stand alone. Mr. Lane's statement that, I believe, 
he may have been an informant, does not stand alone. Captain Henry's statement that he was an agent provocateur did not stand alone. Sergeant Rice's statement does not stand alone. The fact that the FBI was present when the letter was delivered does not stand alone. That the FBI, at the same time, were investigating Butler for a federal arms prosecution does not stand alone. He turned to Sondheim's accusations about Cochran's lack of diligence in the 1972 trial. I really had a difficult time sitting there, Hanlon told the judge, because he wants to blame Mr. Cochran for believing in the system of justice and believing in the district attorney. There is nothing wrong with a lawyer, whether he is young or old, believing that a prosecutor will give you the evidence they are supposed to. As for the telltale scar that L. Thaxton Hansen and his fellow appellate judges had found so decisive, Hamlin said, Mrs. Reed says that she based her identification on a scar. Well, she did say that at trial. The only problem is she didn't say it to the police department on December 19th of 1968. She didn't say it at the grand jury. She only said it after she sat in court and saw Mr. Pratt. Hanlon confessed to Judge Dickey that he didn't agree with Cochran's declaration of faith in the legal system. I started with Mr. Pratt's case. This is where I began, and I have done many trials. But my faith in this system has been tempered by seeing what has happened in his case. I have seen the machinations of the legal system, whether it be courts or district attorneys, so my belief in this legal system will always be tempered by what has gone on for him and me in the last 23 years in this case. I am a lawyer. I believe in the system, and I try as hard as I can, but there is a part of me that questions the ability of the legal system to deal with cases like Mr. Pratt's. He paused, then said, and this is where I want to end your honor. When I began this case, we wrote of conspiracies. You never heard that word before this court. There are many large issues that can be raised about Mr. Pratt's case, about why things happen, who did what. The answers to those large issues are not for the court. They should not be. They don't have to be, and they will never be. There is a very small issue, and all we have to deal with here is, did Mr. Pratt get a fair trial? And if he didn't, should the trial be reversed? I believe that this court 
has heard the evidence and will finally mete out justice for Elmer Geronimo Pratt. I truly believe that as I stand before you. Thank you very much. Whispers went through the packed courtroom like a soft breeze. It was now within the judge's authority to order a new trial, set bail, and send Pratt and his new dashiki out the front door and into the arms of his well-wishers. But none of the attorneys expected an immediate decision from such a deliberate judge. Everyone listened closely as Dickey confirmed the expectations. The court, probably to the disappointment of most people present, is not going to make a ruling on this today. A low moan issued from the spectators. Instead of gently admonishing them as he had during the hearing, Dickey said, I have been a judge almost 27 years, and I have never had a case with so much reading involved. There is just a mountain of material, and I want to make sure that I don't overlook anything, including reviewing the arguments today with the evidence which has been referred to fully. So, I will submit this matter and advise you in writing of my decision. I will try to do this as soon as possible. After the judge squared his shoulders and strode into his chambers, Hanlon squeezed Geronimo's arm and said, A couple more weeks, G. That's all. You can make it. As a bailiff, started to lead Pratt toward the holding cell in the rear of the courtroom, he turned toward the crowd and waved. Hanlon and his friends were pleased to see that he was smiling. Chapter 73 Nervously Calm Back in his cell at Mule Creek, after another long ride in chains, Geronimo filled his hours with chess, scrabble, chants, and meditation. In Morgan City, friends and relatives added prayers and the drone of Eunice Pratt's mantras filled the little house on 2nd Street. Sister Jacqueline self-styled prayer warrior and minister of the gospel urged friends and distant cousins to send up more heavenly appeals. Brother Timothy reported hearing an African-American talk show host urge his listeners to pray for Geronimo as the judge prepares his decision. At Howard University, a young law professor named Nkechi Tiefa began teaching a course on political prisoners built around the Pratt case. Newspapers and broadcast media carried progress reports that referred to Geronimo as last man standing, the world's longest held political prisoner now that Nelson Mandela had been freed. A revolutionary website headlined its coverage 
From the Gulag, Geronimo Fights On. The Los Angeles Times informed its readers that Pratt may be on the verge of winning a reversal of his murder conviction. A newspaper editorialist called his case overpowering. Hanlon read the coverage and prepared himself for another blow. Even if we lose, he told a reporter, I know in my heart that I've taken on these people for 20 years. They want this to go away. It's never gone away. And I can take some pride in that, even if we lose. It's never gone away. On doctor's orders, he prepared a sterile room at home, and Kathy was sent home by ambulance, too weak to see anyone except her immediate family. Her young sons were excited by her arrival, but confused and embarrassed by the baldness caused by chemotherapy. She was in agonizing pain on Liam's 10th birthday in mid-May. Hamlin acted as master of ceremonies at the party. The prognosis varied from day to day. By May 29, 1997, Judge Dickey had been silent for nearly three months, nor had he sent any signals. His clerk fended off Juliana Drouse's insistent calls and finally asked her to be patient the decision would be sent to Hanlon's office when it was available. No, she didn't have the slightest idea which way the judge was leaning. All she knew was that he disappeared behind mountains of law books every morning and left each afternoon with his usual crisp, Bye, thank you. Everett Dickey would not be hurried. The edgy players became edgier. Cochran said, I'm still nervous. I think we've won, but I can't forget all those other decisions. There's one big unknown factor. Politics. This is the most political case I've ever tried. The FBI is always lurking in the background. I have the feeling that all it would take is one call from Director Louis Freak and we're tubed again. Jim McCloskey checked in by phone. He was on the road again, toiling at his appointed task of freeing the imprisoned innocent. I'm optimistic the lay minister kept telling his colleagues. I wish I was, Hamlin replied. Pratt called often from Mule Creek. To Hamlin he sounded nervously calm. In the afternoon of May 29, 1997, the phone rang on the set of Court TV's Cochran and Company. It was Cochran's longtime secretary, Eloise McGill, calling from Los Angeles. I don't know what this is all about, she told her boss, but Mr. Hanlon's office 
wants you to stand by on the speakerphone. In the Victorian building on DuBose Avenue in San Francisco, Juliana Drouse was trying to patch up a transcontinental telephone network. Just after lunchtime, Judge Dickey's clerk had called. She was preparing to fax the order to the Hanlon office. It would be released to the press 30 minutes later. Did we win? Drouse asked. The clerk politely refused to answer. Drouse located Mark Rosenbaum and Robert Garcia and asked them to stand by on their phones. Jim McClowski was out of touch. Kathy Ryan was running a high fever and Hanlon was on his way to the office by car. Tony Tamborello, distinguished senior partner of the firm Tamborello, Hanlon, and Wagoner, yelled down from the second floor fax room, Julie, I think it's starting. He'd never been directly involved in the case, but for two decades his firm had backed Pratt with resources, patience, and cash. Drouse rushed up the stairs, grabbed an extension phone, and watched the fax machine as the words Orange County Superior Court inched into sight. Voices babbled in the telephone that she cradled against her ear. Just shut up, she yelled. It's coming out. She read the first few pages aloud. The words seemed encouraging. The judge cited errors by the DA and observed the evidence which was withheld about Julius Butler and his activities could have put the whole case in a different light and failure to timely disclose it undermines confidence in the verdict. He referred to Julius Butler's false testimony and noted for three years before the Pratt trial Butler had been providing information about the Black Panther Party and individuals associated with it to law enforcement agencies on a confidential basis. This crucial fact, the judge ruled, was obviously relevant to his credibility as a witness and should have been shared with the defense and the jury. As the pages extruded from the fax machine with mouse-like scratchings and squeaks, Drouse began jumping up and down. She smacked Tomborello on the back, then said, What's keeping Stu? Oh, Tony, we need him here. Telephone voices in her ear ordered her to continue reading. Staffers thronged around the machine. Over the babble, she heard a sharp command voice from New York. None of this preliminary stuff matters. Read the ruling, Julie. At the end. The end. I don't have the fucking end, Johnny, she said. I'm getting it page by page. Read, damn it, a female voice ordered. 
It was Cochran's aide, Sean Chapman, weighing in from Los Angeles. Drouse read the judge's critical comments about the gun that had been provided to the state's star informer. Dickey observed that Richard Kalustian and various law enforcement officers were aware that Butler was carrying the weapon without any official sanction, even though it was a violation of state law punishable by up to 15 years in prison. He took note of the peculiarly light sentencing in the Ollie Taylor case and criticized the LAPD for allowing Butler to turn in his personal submachine gun on the pretext that it was Panther property. As for Sondenheim's attempt to blame Cochran and Hollapeter for failing to turn up exculpatory evidence, Dickey cited a 1972 U.S. Supreme Court decision, even without request from the defendant, either intentional or negligent suppression by the prosecution of substantial material evidence favorable to the accused denies the accused a fair trial and requires reversal. Drouse's voice began to crack as she read and exulted and pounded on her colleagues' backs. When she paused for breath, she heard a cackling sound over the phone and realized it was Cochran chortling. Calm down, Julie, he was yelling, but he wasn't taking his own advice. Hurry up. Get to the good part. She read the judge's comments about the courtroom identification of Pratt by Kenneth Olson and Barbara Mary Reed. Dickey wrote that apart from the implausibility of such identifications after two years, the possible unreliability of cross-racial identifications of strangers based on a brief period of observation under stressful conditions has become so well known in the years since the Pratt trial that judges now almost always specially instruct a jury on the subject. At last, Drouse came to the end of the order. Her voice broke as she read the legal jargon. Therefore, habeas corpus is granted and petitioner's conviction is reversed and remanded for further proceedings. The phone line fell silent. She wondered if there'd been a disconnect. Then she heard Cochran's choking voice, God bless Geronimo Pratt. Hamlin arrived to chaos. Tony Tamborello had opened the liquor cabinet and revelers dripped with champagne, beer, and liqueurs of many colors. Staffers toasted Geronimo, Hamlin, Cochran, McCloskey, Bob Bloon, Drouse, Judge Dickey, Orange County, John Wing, and the United States of America. Drouse whirled in a victory dance, her long gray-black hair flying. Stew, she yelled, do you believe this? Look at these pages. Just look. 
Her face gleamed with tears and champagne. We won, Stu, she yelled. We won, we won, we won. We won it all. We won in every possible way. You can't win a better win. Hanlon rubbed his eyes and said softly, It's about time. It's about fucking time. He phoned the news to Kathy. She said, Oh, Stu, I'm so happy. After he promised to come straight home, he retired to his inner office with Drouse and Tamborello. He took a phone call from a wire service reporter who wanted to know if the good news about the ruling helped to cancel out the bad news about his wife's health. He slammed the phone down. Then it hit him. Pratt doesn't know. We're drinking champagne and G is locked in a cell at Mule Creek. The law firm's phone lines were swamped by the media. When Hanlon finally got through to the prison, the operator reminded him that inmates weren't permitted to take incoming calls. Contact had to be initiated by the prisoner himself by collect call. Listen, Hanlon said, I've got to talk to him. Elmer Gerard Pratt, B40319. You've got to connect us. Sir, please, break your rules for once. Have a heart. This is life and death. The operator was silent and Hanlon was afraid she'd hung up. Please, he said, could you give me the warden's office? Maybe a little schmooze would work. A CBS film crew burst into Hanlon's office just as he started talking to his client. Geronimo said he was speaking on the warden's personal phone. Hey, G, Hanlon said. We won. We fucking won. At first, his client didn't seem to comprehend. We won, Hanlon repeated. He read the last paragraph of the order into the phone. Geronimo said, Say it again, Stu. Read me the end again. When the brief conversation was over, a local reporter elbowed his way into Hanlon's office and asked for a comment on a statement that had just been released by Gil Garcetti. After an incredibly exhaustive investigation, one that I personally undertook, there is no evidence that's been brought to my attention that convinces me in any way as to the innocence of Mr. Pratt. Hanlon grunted and said, No evidence? Tell Garcetti to drop in on my basement. I've got 25 boxes he can go through. What if the DA made good on his threat to appeal? We'd kick his ass from here to Tijuana. While the office staff began an all-night celebration, Hanlon headed home. 
After Johnny Cochran signed Cochran and Company off the air for the day, he escorted his wife Dale to their favorite New York restaurant, the Trattorio dell'Arte, for a night of excess and celebration. Neither of the Cochrans had a taste for alcohol, but they took a few sips of champagne in honor of Geronimo and a few more in honor of Judge Dickey. It was the greatest evening of my life, Cochran said later. After that champagne, I went completely out of control and ordered a second helping of Penny. Timothy Pratt stayed up late preparing an exegesis. He credited the power of consistent collective prayer and faith for the vindication and likened the legal system that had imprisoned Geronimo to the systems that enslaved Daniel and Joseph. They were released by the power of God, not man. Johnny and Stu were God's instruments and for that they should feel blessed. Judge Dickey felt the power of God and decided to do the right thing. In Morgan City, Jack Pratt broke the news to their mother. They're going to let Gerard out, Mama, he said, speaking slowly into her ear. Gerard is coming home. At 94, Eunice Petty Pratt was in the advanced stages of senile dementia and Broca's asphasia incapable of coherent speech and almost blind her range of vision a foot or two. No one knew how much she understood. She hadn't spoken clear English in four or five years, but sometimes she acknowledged her children by lightly squeezing their hands. She responded to the good news by chanting a little faster. Chapter 74 Reveille for Radicals In the two weeks between the judge's decision and a final bail hearing, Pratt remained in bureaucratic suspension as his lawyers exchanged salvos with the Los Angeles DA's office. Gil Garcetti announced that he would appeal of course. He reminded the Los Angeles Times that the Panther leader's conviction had been upheld repeatedly by other courts. Cochran called the DA's decision sickening. They can't retry this case for a lot of reasons because of their own impropriety, he told Times reporter Edward Boyer. So why appeal it? It's an act of folly. Once again, Mr. Garcetti has succumbed to people in his own office who are from a different era, maybe the Pleistocene era. From San Francisco, Hanlon issued a response to Garcetti's claim that the DA's office had acted appropriately and ethically in this case. Hanlon called the comment garbage and challenged Garcetti personally. If you're so convinced Mr. Pratt is guilty, then you get in there yourself and retry the case. Let's forget about the appeal. Let's go to trial in 60 days. 
editorialist added to the clamor. The San Francisco Chronicle declared that Pratt had been subjected to a nightmare few can imagine and suggested that his immediate release would be a fitting rebuke to a witch-hunting era. The Los Angeles Times urged Garcetti to distance his office from the improper tactics of an earlier district attorney's office by declining to retry a man who has already spent more than half of his life in prison. Loyola Law School professor Lori L. Levinson publicly urged Garcetti to close the book. Cochran and Hanlon visited their client at Mill Creek and had to pick their way through a fan club of guards, both black and white, some of whom had rushed back to the prison on their days off. Staff members held out slips of paper for autographs. It was Johnny's signature that they wanted, Hanlon said good-naturedly. Hanging out with him was like being backstage at a rock concert. Hanlon was pleased at the Pratt support inside the walls. Guards asked if they could write recommendations to the judge to release G on his own recognizance. Some of them were Vietnam veterans. They wanted to provide an honor guard for the prison van on the trip back to Orange County on their own time at no pay. The lawyers spent three hours with their client and listened to his travel plans. After the bail hearing, he intended to fly to Marin County to attend his daughter Shona's graduation from high school and his son Hiroji's graduation from junior high. Then he would head straight for across the tracks and his mother. He hadn't seen her in 20 years, Hanlon told reporters. It was all he could talk about. Pratt also had invitations to appear at political events and civil rights forums at a poverty conference in the Caribbean, in African American churches, at a meeting of the National Black Leadership Forum, at the Essence Music Festival in New Orleans, at his old colleague Bobby Seale's ghetto program in Philadelphia, at a black convocation in Jamaica, and at reunions with old Panther warriors. He intended to visit the Vietnam Wall in Washington to run his fingertips across the names of old comrades. He would be busy. The Los Angeles Times described the bail hearing on the morning of June 10, 1997 as Reveille for Radicals, a gathering of old Panthers who have grown long in the tooth and gray at the temples as new helicopters racketed back and forth above the courthouse, Dennis Banks and fellow members of his American Indian movement waved placards saying, Free Peltier, and pounded on tom-toms made of buffalo skin. Footnote 71, Leonard Peltier, a Native American activist, was serving two life sentences for the killings of two FBI agents in South Dakota. End of footnote. Samaya Kambui, 
the former Peaches Moore strummed her 36-string auto harp and sang, May J. Edgar Hoover burn in fire and Geronimo walk on free soil. Eldridge Cleaver, now 61, divorced, a born-again Christian dying of cancer and diabetes, arrived in a gray banker's suit with a red carnation and shook hands weakly. The Pratt juror, Jeannie Hamilton, now teaching accounting in Orange County, and Wesley Swearingen, 70 and long retired from the FBI, wept openly outside the ninth floor courtroom. Geronimo's big sister, Virginia, made her way to a front row, her black hair done up in tight braids that framed her pretty face and flashing teeth. It was her birthday. At her side was Geronimo's track star son, Hiroji, now fourteen, his head freshly shaved in tribute to his father. The proceedings in Department 35 were brief. Pratt was flanked by law professor Kathleen Cleaver on his right and Cochran and Hanlon on his left. When Judge Dickey asked for bail suggestions, Garcetti's representative was silent. Cochran said, I'd suggest $25,000, a thousand for each year Mr. Pratt spent in prison. Footnote 72. Pratt had actually served 26 years and 7 months, counting time served while awaiting trial. End of footnote. It's symbolic, Your Honor. All right, Judge Dickey said after a long pause. Bail will be set at $25,000. A shriek pierced the courtroom. It came from retired prison counselor A. Lynn Atkinson. Footnote 73. Back home at Petaluma, the next day, Atkinson told a friend, I was at Geronimo's bail hearing in Santa Ana. I know, the friend replied. I heard you scream on TV. End of footnote. Spectators yelled and cheered and stomped, and the judge made no effort to control the jubilation. As Geronimo stood up in his saffron jumpsuit with O.C. Jail on the back, a gray-haired black man called out, Free at last! Several responded, Amen. Pratt looked straight at the judge and said, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. If there are further proceedings, I'll be the first one here. You can be assured I will adhere to any rule the court orders me to follow. He stood at attention and squared his shoulders, then tapped his fist where he'd once pounded paratroopers' wings into his bare chest. That's my word, he said in a husky voice, as a Vietnam vet and a man. Today's a happy day, Jenny Pratt told a reporter on her way out of the jammed courtroom. After all those years, all those prisons, 
As usual, the pragmatic school teacher was looking ahead. This will be such a big change for my brother, she said. He's not going to fly out like a wild bird. Hanlon and Cochran signed papers in the jail office while Geronimo changed into khaki slacks and a print shirt for a public appearance on the lawn. When he walked down the front steps just after noon, he blinked in the bright California sunshine, then thrust his fist upward in a black power salute. As the crowd surged forward, Hanlon told him, Everybody wants to touch you. Pratt walked across the lawn and touched a tree. He told Hanlon it made him weak in the knees. Rumpled of the bailey slipped into the crowd. He was happy for his old client, but he couldn't stop thinking about the latest word from San Francisco. Kathy Ryan Hanlon had six months to live. The TV cameras picked out Cochran and Pratt smiling and waving and acknowledging the crowd. Cochran yelled, He's an American hero. Someone asked how the lawyers had managed to stay with the case for so many years. Cochran pointed to Pratt and said, We drew our strength from him and from the justice system. You see, it works. Yeah, Hanlon whispered to himself, after 27 years. A reporter steered Pratt to a bank of microphones that were wired up to TV satellite trucks. Eldridge Cleaver cried out, Hey, we need some peace on those drums. But the throbbing obligato continued. Above the din, a Fox TV reporter asked the freed man what he thought about Julius Carl Butler. I wish him well, Geronimo replied, and I hope he wakes up out of his stupor and begins telling the truth. I'm not the only victim of J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon and the FBI. You have political prisoners on top of political prisoners. I'm only one of many. You're not upset about Butler? Another reporter asked. When you go through what I've gone through, you learn that bitterness has no place in the human heart. Pratt said he was incapable of harsh thoughts at the moment. He beckoned toward the crowd and said, This is such a loving thing. He asked his interviewers to remember the murdered Carolyn Olson in their articles. She was an anti-war demonstrator, he said. She was a teacher, a progressive, a good person. No one speaks up for her. She was like a comrade of ours. A reporter asked about his plans. He smiled and said, I need to see my mother. Every time I left home, I've always gone back. I'm a mama's boy. He looked around and frowned. Where's Stu? He said, then yelled, Where's Stu? 
a trio of husky young African Americans led Geronimo toward Hanlon and a white Jeep Cherokee, a gift from a Pratt Angel. On the way through the smiles and elbows, Geronimo gently pushed aside an autograph book. Excuse me, miss, he said softly, I'm not a movie star. I'm a revolutionary. At the car, he hugged Hamlin and said, Hey, bro, stay close. You scared me for a minute. Hamlin thought, It's okay now. We're friends. As Geronimo started to enter the station wagon, he felt a sudden apprehensiveness. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this can't be real. Somebody's gonna come get me. I'm gonna hear a whistle blow, hear a guard yell, hold it right there. He sat on something hard. It was the first time since his arrest in Texas in 1970 that he'd entered a vehicle unshackled and uncuffed. News cameramen tightened their focus as he fiddled with the shoulder strap. Hanlon advised him to pull it across his chest. Don't worry, Geronimo called out with an embarrassed smile. I'll get it. I'll learn. As the vehicle eased away, members of the crowd shouted, Power to the people! and tried to follow. On the lawn, old enemies, Eldridge Cleaver and David Hilliard, embraced. We're all older, said Hilliard, who now conducted Black Panther bus tours in Oakland and lectured on party history. We have kids we have to put through school, but except for Huey Newton, we're all still alive. We try to keep the message alive. Donald Freed, historian of the Panther phenomenon and a professor at the University of Southern California, told a group of his old radical friends on the lawn, to the mainstream media, Geronimo's getting out of prison says the system works, that the bad old days are gone and this will never happen again. But what this really is all about is that a man who was buried alive in the California Department of Corrections walks out to haunt America. A few hours after the last celebrant had left the courthouse, the First African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles issued an announcement. Board Chairman Julius Butler had resigned his post with a statement that, I don't want to cause any further harm or pain to my church family. As the door opens for Geronimo Pratt, a church leader told the media the door closes for Julius Butler as a leader within the First AME Church. But Julius will continue to be a member here. Now is the time for healing. We invite Geronimo Pratt to come to the First AME Church and share in the glory of Jesus. Chapter 75 Reunion That night, Geronimo attended a jubilant 
foot-stomping service at the lower end of the South Central Ghetto. The parishioners of Faith United Methodist Church at 108th and Broadway had held weekly free Geronimo Pratt meetings and the church overflowed on this first night of his freedom. Pratt entered to the sound of a scratchy tenor sax blaring one of his father's favorite songs when the saints go marching in. He worked the aisle slowly, smiling and shaking every hand. The Reverend Jim McCloskey tried to catch the joyous spirit from a front pew, but his throat hurt from holding back tears. He regarded this as one of the great days of his life, but it was not without its confusions and ambiguities. Somewhere behind him sat Clarence Chance, an African-American whom Centurion Ministries had freed after seventeen years of imprisonment. The minister thought of Roger Coleman, the coal miner, who'd been electrocuted five minutes after their last goodbye. If the U.S. Supreme Court hadn't declared the death penalty unconstitutional in 1972, McCloskey reminded himself Geronimo would be in the ground with Roger, his case a forgotten entry in dusty legal files. McCloskey kept remembering Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. The crusading minister often explained to doubters that his job would be impossible without faith. Now he asked himself, was it faith that won this day? Did God intervene to cause this miracle? He wanted to think so, but why was God there for Geronimo Pratt and not for Roger Coleman? It was theodicy again, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. He watched as Pratt approached the altar in his loose ex-quarterback's stride. I saw this dark man in his beautiful dashiki, red and black with gold highlights, his long flowing gown, his amber-tinted glasses, his shaven head and goatee that ran into his mustache. I saw him standing proud in front of hundreds of people like an ancient tribal king. He thanked them in a few graceful words, a natural orator, no more intimidated by the crowd than he'd been by cops or judges or prison guards. He said, I want to bring back that spirit of the sixties. I am a revolutionary. We are not yet free. I saw a proud, principled, determined man. I thought, twenty-seven years. That's when I broke down. Johnny Cochran had paid off his plundered credit card and he booked dinner for seventy-five at the Georgia restaurant a West Los Angeles gourmet soul food restaurant that was popular with the African-American elite. Geronimo arrived with Ashaki and their two children. 
Hamlin attended with Russell Little and Bill Harris, former clients and veterans of the ill-starred Symbionese Liberation Army. Over bowls of crawfish biscay and jambalaya, gray-haired warriors traded memories. Said Clarence Chance, now in his sixth year of renewed freedom thanks to Centurion Ministries, I feel secure now knowing my brother Pratt is free. Wes Swearingen said he still felt ashamed of his fellow FBI agents. Dennis Banks said that the American Indian movement had known Geronimo was framed from the beginning. No one with such a heroic name and manner could be guilty. Eldridge Cleaver spoke of the toll of prison life and the reason that Geronimo was standing up so well was because of his innocence. David Hilliard said he hoped that his Panther colleague would continue to fight for the people. Pratt assured Hilliard and the crowd that his marching orders hadn't changed in 30 years, but he let the others do most of the talking as he munched contentedly on fried catfish, brown rice, cornbread, biscuits and leaves. He took a sip of a 1994 Close to Boo from Sonoma County, his first taste of alcohol since he'd overindulged on brandy at San Quentin and had to be poured into his cell by Lynn Atkinson. He joked that several of his fellow prisoners had been beefed by guards two weeks earlier for trying to make wine from raisins and sugar. And here I am now with a glass in front of me. He held it up like a rare jewel. For the rest of the evening, the Pratt entourage was secluded at Cochran's Beach House in Marina del Rey. Hanlon planned to fly home to San Francisco in the morning. Around midnight, with Ashaki and the children asleep, Pratt and Hanlon walked the sandy littoral with Russell Little and Bill Harris. Later, Hanlon reflected, Harris kidnapped Patty Hearst. I helped him get off with eight years. Little was falsely convicted of murder, and Tony Sarah and I got his life sentence reversed. And G was free. It was a rare moment in the life of a criminal defense attorney, a great natural high. Somebody said, whoever thought we'd live to see this day. That said it all. I felt so grateful that Kathy lived to see the end. Chapter 76 Homecoming Four days later, on the afternoon of Saturday, June 14, 1997, the little neighborhood known as Across the Tracks hummed with anticipation. Network TV trucks parked across the street from the old Pratt House and from there to the levee the streets and lawns swarmed with people, almost all of them black. Welcome signs hung in Death Alley and gnarled old pecan and fruit trees for crops of streamers and balloons. On tables set up 
on the lawn in front of Eunice Pratt's cinder block cottage, mounds of cornbread and baking soda biscuits sent up puffs of steam under metal foil, vats of crawfish and crab warmed over portable stoves. The tails of jumbo shrimp shone pink in pails of shaved ice. Cooks stirred pots of beans and rice and flipped chicken parts and fish fillets in iron skillets. Grease dripped from ribs of beef and pork rotating over spits. Tables sagged with buttered grits, boudin noir, spaghetti, garlic potato salad, spicy gumbo, okra, fresh avoca island greens. Old friends clutched gifts and mementos to press on Geronimo. A catfishing kit from his childhood pal Alvin Cato Delco. A Blue Devils Forever t-shirt from a Morgan City Colored High teammate. A box of pralines from a neighbor who'd helped to change his diapers. The Pratt siblings bustled about. No one was missing. For some, the trip had been made on borrowed money. Timothy clutched a slip of paper on which he'd written a couplet from a Shakespeare sonnet. Thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. Tim intended to share the poetry with the brother he still called Gerard, who was en route from San Francisco on airline tickets that had been sent to Johnny Cochran's office by Shaquille O'Neal, the pro basketball star. Geronimo, Ashaki, Hiroji, and Shona would be escorted by retired insurance executive Johnny L. Cochran Sr., 80 years old, and their arrival was expected any minute. Just after 2 p.m., the crowd stirred as a long limousine provided gratis by local mortician Byron Jones bumped over the Southern Pacific track. Lights flashing, the big Lincoln rolled slowly past the Catholic Church where Enoch Jack Pratt and Eunice Petty had been married. The celebrants yelled and clapped as the sunroof slid open and a shaved head appeared, followed by sturdy shoulders. The limousine was still in motion when the man of the hour erupted through the roof, leaped into the crowd, and ran toward his mother's front door. I'm sorry, he called back to the driver. If I hurt the car, I'll pay. Geronimo hadn't seen his mother since her bus trip from Morgan City to Folsom in 1974. As he reached the door, he lowered his voice and told a reporter, She's an old lady now. I'm scared of making her nervous. Jacqueline, Imelda, and Virginia had brushed their mother's gray-black hair and dressed her in her favorite color. A sky-blue twist held her thick braid. She wore a simple dress of blue plaid, white socks, and blue flowered slippers as she slowly rocked and chanted on her favorite chair in the tiny living room. Her daughters had told her that Gerard was coming home, 
but no one knew if she understood. When Geronimo came into the front room, he shooed everybody out. His brother Jack said later, but I was standing in the corner and didn't move. Ain't nobody gonna keep me out after 27 years. I watched him kneel by our mother. He said, Mama, your baby boy's home. Your baby boy made it. Mama chanted louder. He said, Mama, I promised you I was coming home. He took her hand and a surprised look came over his face. He said, Mama, that's the same chant I did in the hole. That's the chant that kept me going. I was standing in the corner, tears running down my shirt. The Lord privileged me to see that scene. I know Mama recognized him. He stayed with her twenty minutes, holding her hand and listening. Then G and I walked out the door together. I said, thank God it's gone. All those years carrying that cross. He lowered his head and said, what did I put my family through? I took him by the arm and we went outside to see our friends. Epilogue 1 After California's Second District Court of Appeal denied the DA's appeal by a 3-0 vote, Gil Garcetti announced that he was dropping the case. With the last legal cloud removed, Pratt moved his mother and immediate family into a big antebellum home two miles north of the Sunset Limited tracks in Morgan City. He spent hours alone with Eunice, holding her small hands, rubbing circulation into her back, trying to teach her a word a day, helping her in and out of a therapeutic hot tub in a room that he'd tiled himself in blue. He was in demand as a lecturer but still refused to give autographs. Don't hero worship me, he told his admirers on a college campus. We all have to be our own heroes and act like it. Our family structure is failing because too many young black men are in prison. Write to the brothers. Help the kids on the edge. Give something back. No longer obliged to do celestinics, he worked out and jogged every day, cut back on fried food after a brief hospitalization for high blood pressure, and fished for black bass, sakalate, and chopik in the Atchafalaya swamp. He's trying to get used to the world, Stuart Hanlon explained. It'll take a while. Hanlon looked back on the Pratt case as a mellowing experience, full of pain and tragedy, but in the end a lesson in human behavior. When I was young, everything was a conspiracy.
But I gradually came to realize that nobody sat down and said, let's frame Pratt. It was just a bunch of people making wrong decisions and then it snowballs and others help them cover up because they're convinced the guy is guilty. So what's the difference if they bend the law to keep him locked up? It doesn't take a big plan to form a conspiracy. It started with J. Edgar Hoover telling his agents, get the Panthers, neutralize Pratt. That was an act of racial hatred worse than the worst crimes of the Ku Klux Klan. Cointelpro versus a bunch of black guys was a naval engagement between a battleship and a canoe. Hoover's agents knew their asses would be covered no matter how many dirty tricks they pulled and how many Panthers died. That's where the courts should have intervened. Somewhere along the line, a judge should have told Richard Held and those other agents, hey, I don't care if you are the FBI, you're breaking the law. That's what courts are for. But I don't see the judges as a bunch of conspirators. For the most part, I see him as gutless. In his customary upbeat style, Johnny L. Cochran Jr. found a bright side to the Pratt story. It taught me and a lot of other lawyers never to accept the official version of an event, never accept a lab report, a forensics finding, never take so-called expert testimony at face value. It taught me to check everything, then check it again. As a result, I see things I never saw before, ask questions I never asked before. I'm a better advocate for my clients. But what a price Geronimo had to pay. Unlike some of the other Pratt lawyers, Cochran never softened toward Richard Kalustian, Julius Butler, the LAPD, or the Los Angeles DA's office. After we got Geronimo out, I went to ex-mayor Tom Bradley's funeral services at First AME Church and Julio was ushering in his Sunday suit. He looked at me and I looked away. The Lord and the first AME may forgive him, but I never will. And I don't have a shred of respect left for those prosecutors. All the rapport and admiration I built up from working with them through the years, from knowing them personally, from being friends, it all disappeared in the Pratt case with very few exceptions. Dick Kalustian and Gil Garcetti were sworn to do justice, but they turned their eyes away. They never had the courage or the integrity to set the record straight. Even when we proved they were wrong, Kalustian tracked Geronimo to the parole board hearings and at the same time he was helping Julio clean up his record so he could get into law school. I could never 
forgive Calustian, I could never go into his courtroom, superior court judge or not, there should be some kind of penalty for what he did. In its social implications, the Pratt case struck Cochran as part of a tragic continuum that had begun when the white citizens of Los Angeles delegated their civic responsibilities to the law enforcement establishment. Back in the 50s and 60s, whites saw the LAPD as the thin blue line protecting them from the invading masses. African Americans, Asians, Pachucos, Zoot Suiters, anybody that didn't have white skin and a bank account. The power structure told the cops and the DA, take care of this problem for us. Keep them in their place. We don't care how you do it. Black folks were regarded as a nuisance at best and a menace at worst. After the Watts riots ended, police chief William Parker said, We've got them dancing like monkeys in a cage. Was he fired over an insensitive remark like that? Nope. Now we have a police building named after him. Some of the chiefs that succeeded Parker believed in a proactive policy. Proactive means get them before they get us. They turned justice upside down. Kathy Ryan died at home a month after Geronimo's release. A few nights later, Hanlon took an uphill walk toward Twin Peaks and a group of Asians snapped his picture from a tour bus. He imagined them displaying the prints when they returned home, San Francisco man crying in rain. In his grief, he decided to abandon his law practice. I'd had enough of other people's problems. I never wanted to see another court. I hated doctors. I hated lawyers. The Pratt case had been my focus for so long. Now I had to learn how to raise two boys. I told Liam and Rory, let's get away from here and start over. But they didn't want to leave their mother's house. Honoring Kathy's last request, Hanlon and five-year-old Rory scattered her ashes in the Pacific near Mendocino. Ten-year-old Liam stayed home and kicked the TV in sorrow and rage. Then the male Hanlons tried to outrun their grief with frantic trips to Hawaii and Mexico. Stewart would put the boys to bed and sit up late at night listening to the surf and wondering how he would spend the rest of his life. After a few tortured weeks he realized how much he missed the law. He couldn't imagine living out his years as anything but a lawyer, no matter how flawed the system or the players, himself included. There were drawbacks, but there were benefits, too. Another Geronimo Pratt might come along. 
Epilogue 2. In April 2000, Geronimo Pratt's lawsuit for false imprisonment and violation of civil rights was settled out of court. The City of Los Angeles agreed to pay $2,750,000, the FBI $1,750,000. It was the first public acknowledgment by the FBI of its culpability. Author's note, I worked very closely with Geronimo Pratt, Stuart Hanlon, and Johnny L. Cochran, Jr. in researching this book, but I also received valuable assistance from Zachary Arbor, A. Lynn Atkinson, Lowell Bergman, Emily Sarah Bischoff, Robert Bloom, Edward J. Boyer, Jacqueline Brown, Sean Cohn, Sonia Davis, Alvin Delco, Juliana Drouse, Reverend James McCloskey, Eloise McGill, Dolores Michelson, Chris Min, Sue Peterson, Ashaki Pratt, Charles Pratt, Reverend Jack Pratt, Timothy Pratt, Virginia Pratt, Linda Steinman, and a small army of patient court clerks, researchers, paralegals, librarians, and secretaries who made some 55,000 pages of documentary material available. In the end, however, I am solely responsible for the accuracy of the finished product and any errors are my own. Jack Olson, Bainbridge Island, Washington, July 2000. Context of white supremacy, another one bites the dust here at the Cows Book Club. That is it for Last Man Standing, the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, we will be starting new book, Labyrinth, uh, for next week. I am low-key excited, but we've read lots of good books uh, on the book club, so uh, I don't know. shouldn't be that big a deal reading uh, a new book, but... I am excited. Uh, Labyrinth, let me make sure I give folks the full title so that uh, they can, if they are interested in searching author, title, all of that good stuff. Labyrinth, so it's L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H, -A, a detective investigates the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G., the implications of Death Row Records, Suge Knight, and the origins of the Los Angeles Police Scandal. What a full title by Randall Sullivan. That will be our next book. And you see the thread? Boop, boop, boop. Almost directly in chronological order, although the Simpson trial ends and then Geronimo Pratt is released. So in one sense, we are going in exactly chronological order. And again, Tupac Shakur, the godchild of Geronimo Pratt. So I mean, hey... If you are a Los Angeles resident, native, Southern California, like, yeah, maybe you should listen to all three of these uh, and learn quite a bit about racism, white supremacy. Whew. Anyway, but that's for next week. Let's finish up 
with uh, Mr. Pratt, we had folks who wrote in emails. I'll get all of our emails. Anybody, if you have commentary, do a little overtime as we wrap up this week because we just had a really short segment next week. So we'll do our overtime this week, wrap up, and then start fresh in a week. Uh, so first person wrote in, got your back for sure. Uh, had a lot uh, going on, like all of us, but have been keeping up with the readings and would like to share my takeaways from the book. Number one, the high level of integrity shown by both Johnny Cochran and Geronimo Pratt is something to aspire to. Ashe. Johnny Cochran may have been deemed flashy by some because of the way he dressed and his uppity nature, but he was humble and full of integrity. Most of all, he clearly loved he was clearly loved by people and did what he could in his own way to combat the system of racism, as did Geronimo Pratt who was so young when he joined the Black Panther Party. Two, Stuart Hamlin is the male equivalent of Marsha Clark. Woo, metaphor. Thanks to affirmative action. Oh, tough. Oh, it's so tough. Uh, and I do not believe for one second he was in any way saddened by the potential of losing of Geronimo Pratt as a friend, as expressed in last week's reading. This week, too, he kept saying it over and over again, remember? Race soldiers do not consider black people as friends. That's a good point, too. Now, how are we really friends? You potentially could have been on death row at minimum, a prisoner for the rest of your life, and we're friends? Some friend, even if they lie and say so, you do not treat friends the way he did or the lack of compassion for the experience of Geronimo Pratt went through if you truly care about that person. Ashe. Number three, it was not said that the racist suspect female counselor was an informant spy in the book readings I've listened to so far, but I do give her a side eye. Why was she able to show such alleged compassion for Pratt, but not for Huey P. Newton? That's uh, Lynn Atkinson. Uh, she popped up again this week. She was at the courtroom uh, screeching apparently and then got a shout out for the author's notes. And as an expressed on the broadcast, how on earth did she manage to get an interview with Nelson Mandela? Talked about that before. Power of white women. Number four, I do believe we listened to a cover-up last week when Kalustian was aided in lying in his testimony on Julio Butler by Handlin and Judge Dickey. Uh, it seemed like uh, Judge Everett was def Everett Dickey was definitely interested in looking out for uh, Judge Kalustian. Judge Kalustian. Uh, let's see, number five, that race soldiers utilize their surveillance tactics of Pro, continuing to this day, modifying them for the circumstance or situation, e.g. the workplace when black people are involved in overt work to tackle racism, etc., etc., absolutely. Number six, I'm shocked by the level of sexual deviance in the system of white supremacy. The book demonstrates how it seeps into everyday life and is pretty much condoned, which is why there are no real sanctions for child rape and other sexually based crimes. Imagine having to work alongside colleagues who think nothing of raping children and using war as justification. Now that was Vietnam too. Now we didn't talk about that, but that was right there. Many Vietnam veterans talked about that, like, ooh wee, we get to rape all these brown women and children, like, ooh but that's neither here nor there continuing, or because someone committed a crime as in prison. 
Thanks for choosing this book, and I'm looking forward to the next two to complete the understanding of the misjustice in Los Angeles, the city of angels. Labyrinth, I'm so excited. Assassination of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G. Not that I wasn't excited to read this book. I narrated it. I'm just saying, you know, continuing. Uh, I just, the sex thing, that's one of the major takeaways for this book from me because that was there from beginning to end. And that's the way, 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 way back. The only reason we're reading all this is because Jeffrey Tubin couldn't keep his pants zipped up. So, I mean, that's long-running thread through all of this. The McMartin School, Jeffrey Tubin, even what we heard this week now. Again, it's either way. So either we got Miss Baker, black female, sodomized, killed, and thrown in a garbage can, or we got some unnamed black male, sodomized, killed, thrown in a garbage can. Train wreck. Remember that? They had a black male in prison raping other inmates. It was right. They... Uh, inmates, they said males and females, they would come and get some sort of sexual gratification watching Mr. Pratt as he tried to go to the bathroom, straining and what have you, like rife, delectable Negro, rethinking Rufus, rife, Long John, uh, we talked about some of the names even, Long John Washington and all the rest of it, like I'll fix his ass, what they said about Johnny Cochran, the homoeroticism and sexual exploitation throughout the text. Uh, let's see if any folks uh, commentary you want to get in before we wrap up. Forgive for us going over time, but you know. Uh, let's see. I see retired firefighter has a hand up. Any of the other folks uh, who are with us, star six and one. If you have a hand or commentary you want to get in, then I'll read our last email from a listener. Check in once more before we. Wrap up. Let's see. Uh, so this is back. Investor finishing. Read some of his commentary before. So for the chapter in game number one, as Dr. King says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The bends towards justice quote is MLK's paraphrasing of a suspected racist abolitionist sermon by Reverend Theodore Parker in 1853. Love the research. President Obama so loved the quote that he had it woven into a rug in the Oval Office, Cowbell. I think it superficially sounds good, but I wonder if the implication is that justice will never be achieved. Just excruciatingly slowly, we will make progress towards it. Uh, I think ta Coates has said numerous times in public that he thinks the evidence shows that that is false, uh, that the if there is such a thing, metaphor, if there is such a thing, it does not bend toward justice. At minimum, the killers of Nicole Brown Simpson, Ronald Goldman, never been convicted. I believe O.J. Simpson do this trial, didn't commit those murders, so at minimum, nobody convicted. I'm of the opinion that the killers were never even arrested. I said killers, plural. Killers were never even arrested. Let's see. Nervously calm. Number one, Gil Garcetti, after an incredibly exhaustive investigation, one that I personally undertook, there is no evidence that's been brought to my attention that, th that convinces me in any way as to the innocence of Mr. Pratt. This is a ridiculous statement, but not surprising from the same man who tried to tell us that O.J. Simpson overwhelming evidence he did it for sure don't believe anybody who tells you otherwise lying old Johnny Cochran uh, let's see radicals number two Donald Free historian of the U of the Panthers 
but was but Donald Freed is a historian of the Panthers, but what this is really is, is all about is that a man who was buried alive in the California Department of Corrections walks out to haunt America. Freed, another suspected racist who benefited from his association with the Black Panthers. He is currently a professor at USC, and he wrote a book on the O.J. Simpson case, and he is in the documentary All Power to the People. Like I was like, wow, because I was... I had his book. He has a great uh, work on the time. His book is called Killing Time on the O.J. Simpson case. And again, he does the same thing, just looking at the timeline and saying something about this is just not the same thing we read. Next, home uh, reunion. Wes Swearingen said he still felt ashamed of his fellow FBI agents. He should include himself when it comes to shame. Amen. Listen to his conduct when he visited the cows in 2009. Next chapter, homecoming. Number one. Pratt, he said, Mama, that's the same chant I did in the hole. That's the chant that kept me going. What a poignant scene. I am glad Mr. Pratt was able to experience this after all he had been through. Epilogue. Number one. Pratt, don't hero worship me, he told his admirers on a college campus. We all have to be our own heroes and act like it. Reminds me of Neely Fuller, Jr., for sure. Number two, Hamlin, it was just a bunch of people making wrong decisions and then it snowballs, metaphor, and others help them cover up because they convinced the guy, because they're convinced the guy is guilty, so what's the difference? I think a more accurate assessment would be that this is how the global system of racism, white supremacy, works. They have a code of conduct which determines their behavior not a conspiracy per se. Racists know that the ultimate objective is to abuse non-white victims by any means necessary. Absolutely. Uh, and even in this case, but uh, specifically, like you do actually have documents where white people did sit down and say, oh yeah, neutralize this fellow specifically. They may not have said, frame him for the tennis court murders. We're going to say he killed Olsen. It was frame this nigra and the panthers in general and then they went about doing that i don't know what the pfft, white people or something next uh the prep number four oh number excuse me sorry number three cochran found a bright side never to accept the official version of an event as a result i see things i never saw before ask questions i never asked before i'm a better advocate for my clients Stay in the question lane and ask lots of questions and try to, sometimes you might have to be the one staying up until 4 a.m. to think of really good questions. Number four, uh, Pratt, the Pratt case struck Cochran as a part of a tragic continuum that had begun when the white citizens of Los Angeles delegated their responsibilities to the law enforcement establishment. I think the white citizens of Los Angeles got exactly what they wanted, a strike force in order to keep non-white people in line. That's exactly what James Lowen said in his book, Sundown Towns, that white people, not just in L.A., but all across the United States, this is exactly what they expected enforcement officials to do, arrest, intimidate, terrorize, cage, kill black people. Final thoughts. Number one, for non-white victims who are open to a re-evaluation of their thoughts regarding O.J.'s guilt or innocence, I think I might recommend reading this book first 
and thoroughly remembering the names and then Tubin's book. Now that would be interesting. Like, we <laughs> seem like uh, some of these same people's involvement in this case and their behavior, and then go to the and then you've already seen like, wow, these folks can stick pretty hard to a story for like a quarter century that this nigger did it. We know he didn't do it, but this nigger did it. Oh yeah, and we got overwhelming evidence that this nigger did it. And then nope, not at all. Might be. Don't know. I'd have to let me think. I did it I did it that way. I read about this case first in detail and then O. J. Simpson came way later, like beginning of this year later. <laughs> but I did it that way. Uh number two, I am happy he got out, of course, but I am not sure triumph is the best way to describe what happened to Pratt. Amen. You can say that fifty times. There is no way in the Christ, excuse if you know, that's considered a expletive. This is a triumph, like twenty five years more than that, really. Uh, and as he said, all of my 30s, pretty much all of my 40s, half of my 20s, like formative years. He's a parent, so his children's formative years. I'm in a cage. Can't even, what I said before, suspended in time, been in prison so long, I can't even figure out how to buckle up my seatbelt. And I'm supposed to call this a triumph? I wouldn't care if they gave him like $5 billion. Like, come on. Five million dollars after all this. Incidentally, I hope Stuart Hanlon did got like nothing, like nothing, nothing. You'll just blow it all on crack and tranquilizers and whatever else, like nothing. Let's see. Uh, let me get a few comments, then we'll double check, make sure we didn't miss anyone else. Uh, incidentally, Bainbridge Island. My neighbors. Uh, I think I have been to Bainbridge Island before. I think you have to get get the uh, get the ferry to go out to Bainbridge Island, but that is right right here uh, down the road a speck uh, from the main part of Seattle. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to go back so I can go in order for my last few notes on this one, and then we'll push off for a new book next week. Hope we didn't stay up too late for the folks on the East Coast and all the rest of it. Uh, let's see. I was not able to find a Howard professor, Howard University professor named Nkechi Tiefa, N-K-E-C-H-I, first name and then last name T-I-E-F-A. He says, Olson writes that this person made a course on political prisoners built around the Pratt case. I can't find this person listed at all. At least we got a name this time. If anybody can maybe find information, that would be great. Uh, let's see. They, I thought it was so important. Stuart Handlin, in his closing arguments at the hearing, he says that uh, Sondenheim and the district attorney's office, they keep saying that these little tidbits alone, they don't mean anything. Pratt still did this, and there's no evidence to the contrary, like this little tidbit here about, you know, Butler was an informant, or did we know, or uh, what, I mean, just all these little uh, pieces of things uh, somebody thinks that Butler was an agent provocateur and this guy had a gun, like all these little things. That doesn't change the fact that Pratt committed this crime. And I thought it was so important this program, context of white supremacy, Hanlon said, you can't look at each of these things in isolation. You have to look at all of these things in a comprehensive manner to get a full context for 
was there a correct, just hearing, or were Mr. Pratt's constitutional rights violated? The word fair was used so much in this book, meaning correct most of the time, but I mean, wow, no aspect of correctness here. Uh, let's see. Oh, the street thug. I so appreciate it because black people, particularly black males, I would submit, is so easy. They're thugs and criminals and all the rest of it. So Sondenheim says, you know, this prack, some street thug. And the brilliant Johnny Carr, like, what? Street thug? Did you get some information about him being? This is a, just to keep reminding them, we just spent all that nonsense time uh, with Memorial Day, and that's an excuse to gorge on hot dogs and hamburgers even in the midst of a pandemic. This is a two-tour veteran. This is the person right here that you all are scolding Colin Kaepernick and get up off of your knee and and you're going to call him a street thug? Come on. Come on. And he said all of that. Street thugs are not worthy of a fair hearing. You just street treat Street thugs, you put them in a cage with no toilet for eight years. That's what you do to street thugs. Uh, let's see. I thought also thought it was great uh, them making an effort to point out the length of the trial, like we have the exact number of days, so we can all make an objective assessment. Uh, about if they how much time was invested in this trial in comparison to other trials. Certainly not in comparison to the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, let's see. Next. Uh, Stuart Hanlon again tells G, just a couple more weeks. You can make it. You can make it. People are trying to kill me left and right. They're killing counselors. People that aren't even inmates are being sodomized and killed here. Just a few more weeks. You can make it. Just hold tight, man. You got it. Next. Nervously calm. I already said the professor I couldn't locate. His personal submachine gun, I say again, if any of you think you can get your hands uh, right now with all of the uh, bounty of resources and technology in 2021, if you think you can get your paws on a submachine gun before the end of summer, let me know. Like, come on. And they allow him to turn this in? A felon? Convicted felon? And, oh, yeah, I just happen to have this submachine gun. But this is not mine. You know, this is the, uh, the old Panther critters. You know, yeah, this is not mine. Come on. Come on. Uh, let's see. This part, when the judge says the identification of Pratt by Kenneth Olson and Barbara Mary Reed Dickey, Dickey wrote that apart from implausibility of such identifications after two years, the possible unreliability of cross-racial identifications of strangers based on a brief period of observation under stressful conditions has become so well known in the years since that Pratt trial judges now almost always specially instruct a jury on the subject. That is amazing. Like, I don't even remember that from the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, if that was brought up, because, I mean, Jill Shively, even though I'm convinced she lied, uh, but, I mean, really? 
you can see and, and all the rest of it, like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that that had become that standard, that people are that bad with picking out people who are not a member of their so-called race. People are that bad that this is like a standard thing that judges tell people that the so-called eyewitness testimony can be kind of bad if it's someone who is not of the same racial classification as the witness. Like, wow, race matters. <laughs> Let's see. Next. So Hanlon, they get the news, oh my gosh, we won, they're celebrating, out sobriety would be best, like, wow, it can't just be we go have a smoothie, or, you know, we go have a big vegan sushi banquet, or something, that ah, we gotta go get liquored up, <laughs> gotta go drink all kinds of alcohol, and be sloshed over, inebriated, uh, and he says, oh, wait a minute, after we got all hammered, uh, Pratt doesn't know. We got to call them up. And this was another one where I said, now, this is what I'm talking about. We're not going through this together. They had the section before where Pratt said he was depressed and doing him. Oh, yeah, I'm depressed, too. Man, I don't care what you're feeling. You can go home. Same thing. You can go home, snort a few lines, get a few tranquilizers, a bottle of champagne, three or four of them, do whatever you want to. Go to Hawaii. Go to Mexico. I'm in here hoping, listening at night to see if my cell door clicks might be time for someone to come kill me dream about Hawaii later and he's wanting my friend gotta gotta stop slurping my champagne down for a minute to call my friend G let's see Gil Garcetti is gonna appeal of course uh, let's see and this, in my opinion, is important because racists do the same thing with lynchings. They're doing all that nonsense talking about Tulsa right now as though they care about black people in Oklahoma or anywhere else. Uh, it might be it was the DA's office from the 1970s, 60s, who participated in all of this, covered up this information, Calusian at the time, and all the rest of it. Okay. They moved on, got other jobs, some of these people are dead, whatever. New generation of white people come in and they just continue the work. It doesn't matter that they, if they know all the details or whatever, we just pick up because that's what the system of white supremacy is. You see the same thing with Tulsa and some of these other incidents. They're not the original white people that burned and looted and did all that. The next gener generation of white people, they may be the ones that come and they destroy the file records so that people, when they go to get the news reports, oh, they're missing. What happened to the archives about this? They're gone. They might be the white people. We come in and, oh, one day they might want these records that Geronimo Pratt was actually in Oakland. Let's throw this in the trash can. That type of thing. And it just continues in lots of ways, lying about the incident or what actually took place, lots of different ways to use the metaphor, racists will pass the baton to the next generation to kind of keep up the effort in maintaining racism, white supremacy. Again, white people, they know their duties. Uh, let's see. Again, I think Hanlon, he has so much, I think, uh, when Dr. Welsing, she talks about color envy, I see so much of that, I think, with Hanlon and Cochran. Cochran is an older, substantially more successful, established attorney, always has been, substantially better attorney, much more well-known. Uh, and I think Hanlon, I mean, he dresses like a slob and is doing coke. Uh, and Cochran is quoting the Bible and, you know, wearing $5,000 tailor-made suits and all the rest of like totally opposite luxury vehicle and 
all the rest of it. So he says they're going after they win the case, and they go to visit uh, Geronimo, and he says, Johnny's signature is the one that they wanted. They didn't want my autograph. Hanlon said good-naturedly, good na- I, I wonder, hanging out with him was like being backstage at a rock concert. Color envy, in my opinion. I think the person said before they thought Hanlon was mocking Cochran by going and getting some garish ties when he normally is, like I said, dressed like a slob, known for dressing like a slob. Uh, lots of that, the envy of Johnny Cochran hated blackmail, who they thought about firing. Uh, let's see. I Also, I thought back last week, Hanlon, uh, he said that Pratt had been reading his own press and talking about, you know, you got to hurry up. I got places to go. I got people to meet with in Africa and all these different places. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're in your make-believe world. Soon as he gets out, what does he say? Pratt has been... Got his whole calendar is filled. He's got an invitation to a poverty conference in the Caribbean and African American churches and a meeting at the National Black Leadership Forum, the Essence Music Festival in New Orleans. Incidentally, I did think that you know the game, which one of these is not like the others? The Essence Music Festival in New Orleans. Um, maybe I need to attend, and it's the best thing ever, but that seems a little bit different than these other events. But Right on for New Orleans. We talked about them a lot, too. Um, Mr. Pratt is like no grudge at all. Like Bobby Seale and some of these folks, David Hilliard, Eldridge Cleaver, who could have come. or well, not Eldridge Cleaver. He was out of the country. But some of these folks who were here uh, who could have come and testified and maybe helped Pratt during the first trial or what have you and didn't do so because, hey, the party's over. And we got this directive. And Huey Newton told us not to do so. We were going to get it. Like, come on. I don't know. Like, I don't want to sit around and call them names. I'm saying if I was Pratt, I wouldn't be sitting around calling them names or what have you. But I don't know if I'm going to come hang out at your event. Like, man, I'm sure I got things to do. I got 25 years to, to catch up on and all that. We can talk all that later. But wow, I just I think that's phenomenal. Him not having grudges and letting things go with other victims of racism, Huey Newton and other members of the party. Like, wow, what an illustration from Mr. Pratt. Uh, let's see. The drums, they Eldridge Cleaver had to hush at them to quiet all those drums down. Like, uh, music, quiet is always best in most situations. Let's see. Uh, and the same thing I just said, Mr. Pratt not getting angry at other victims. Like, the reporters, they come out and say, you, aren't you, what do you, what do you think about Julio Butler? And he says the same thing, you know. I hope he comes out of this stupor and begins to tell the truth and all the rest of it. And they say, what? You don't, you don't want to call him a coon? You don't you don't want to call him a, a, a no count spade or so we got a whole list of, of names you you don't want to you don't call him any names nah when you go through what I've gone through you learn that bitterness has no place in the human heart that is amazing not that I haven't heard this before because we hear this all the time right after Dylan Roof they'll get a black person to come out and say this towards a white person but to hear a black person talking this way about other victims of racism under these circumstances like wow and that's just my interpretation it seemed like the press like man we wanted him to call Butler a coon and all the man oh disappointed uh let's see anything else 
Incidentally, they list mounds and <coughs> excuse me. They list mounds of credit cards, or excuse me, different entrees and all kinds of food at all of these different establishments and back home in Louisiana for Mr. Pratt. Everybody can eat well in celebration. I would not have been able to eat anything. It sounds like they had all kinds of meaty dishes and things that just, oh my, like <clears throat> you're going to have all kinds of health problems, which I think they said uh, Pratt eventually he had to uh, cut back, eat more veggies because he had a little bit of high blood pressure, all that greasy fried fatty foods like I can see why. Uh, let's see. And just to emphasize again, Johnny Cochran working this case pro bono and footing the bill for many of the expenses in this case, even though Maureen Dowd writes at the New York Times falsely lying on him and oh that no count Johnny Cochran and failed on Geronimo Pratt at the last minute so he can go play on television. Uh, let's see. Eldridge Cleaver spoke of the toll of prison life and the reason that Geronimo was standing up so well was because of his innocence. Victims guaranteed qualified. That does not make logical sense to me at all. Khalid Browder may have been innocent. He did not hold up well. There are many, many victims of white supremacy racism who are innocent of the crimes that they are charged with and they do not hold up well. I have seen zero evidence, I mean zero evidence that anybody holds up well whether you're innocent or not uh, to being in greater confinement and tortured and subjected to all kinds of Satanism and so uh, sadism and sodomy and all the rest of it that we heard in this book. I've seen no evidence that anyone holds up well to that. Uh, let's see, even Geronimo Pratt. Mm -mm -mm. I guess I can call it a wrap there. God, I, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's see. Oh, yeah, I totally disagree with Hanlon's assessment that about Cointelpro and saying that it wasn't a conspiracy and it was just people with no courage and uh, people uh, that it, that <clears throat> J. Edgar Hoover starts off telling his agent uh, his agents that we need to get the Panthers and neutralize them and all the rest of it, but uh, that this is just people making wrong decisions. That is totally, totally false incorrect wording and everything and it could just be willful racism if you're dedicated to racism white supremacy and that's the end product then people were not making so-called wrong decisions they were doing exactly what they are dedicated to and that's mistreating non-white people that's what this is couldn't be any clearer uh, and incidentally even his metaphor he says that Hoover and his agents and it was coordinated it's not just the FBI it's like we got in this case the FBI in coordination with the LAPD and local enforcement officials sometimes including district attorneys uh, that them against just black citizens this is like a naval battleship and a canoe I said whoa 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 what black person has a canoe and then I said whoa 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 system of racism white supremacy is fact racists prohibited many generations of black people from even learning how to swim. In fact,
that aspect of white supremacy racism is so ingrained, NPR has a story this week, 1st of June 2021, encouraging black parents to get their children into some sort of swim lessons or swim class because of that legacy of white supremacy racism. So it's not even, even that's not accurate. It's not a battleship against a canoe. We don't have canoes, and you won't let us learn how to swim. That might be the end. Let's see. Oh, no, 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 no. I just, I thought it was significant. He identified the Asians coming to snap a picture of him when he's grieving about his wife. Most of the time, like I think if it had been white people that came and took this picture, I don't think he would have identified them and said some white people came and took a picture. I think it's when non-white people do something like this that we perceive as an annoyance or maybe incorrect, criminal, that type of thing. You are going to be racialized as not white. If it had been white people who did this, because I mean white people do annoying things and snap pictures and all kinds of things, I don't think he would have labeled them, branded them as white. Is that it? Uh, the money is lame. I think he got like five, a little less than $5 million lame. And uh, Jack Olson had access to a lot of people to write this book. Lynn Atkinson, the Pratt family, Johnny Cochran, the whole nine. Uh, any other folks, final comments they want to get in? Last man standing. We did super overtime, but again, that was just so we could totally wrap the book this week. New book next week. Anyone? Commentary? Assume everybody is good. Extra late for the folks on the East Coast. Sorry, again, we would have just had a short section next week. Uh, and we were right, right at the end, always. If we're close to finishing the book, I'd rather finish, and then we can move on to a new book next week. So, Labyrinth for next Thursday. We'll be here for Neutralizing Workplace Racism uh, tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, compensatory call-in on Saturday. Uh, much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy and the This service is provided in high definition by free conference call. Access code accepted. There are five participants in the conference. Q&A session has started. The recording has started. Got dis disconnected right as we were wrapping things up. Uh, just said hope it was worthy of folks' time and energy. Sobriety would be best. Uh, we did hear that a few times this evening. Uh, Stuart Hanlon, uh, not a good example. Save all the alcohol. Even, you know, should there arise a reason to celebrate? See if we can keep it uh, sober. You can find lots of other ways. They got sparkling cider and all kinds of things. No reason to, you know, go crazy with the alcohol even then. In addition to being sober, uh, if we're going out and about, be very alert. Lots of handgun owners, submachine gun too, probably. Uh, out and about, just be mindful uh, when you are traveling. The worthlessness of black life was on display in this book, weekly, 
every page it seemed if you need a reminder uh, if you are driving uh, definitely sober uh, you are buckled very mindful about what's happening around you if you're driving you're not on your cell phone one we're trying to minimize contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe and we need our attention be alert about what's happening in our environment that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. A victim. Uh, a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Uh-huh. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.